The following is a conversation with Chris Tarbell, a former FBI special agent and cybercrime specialist who tracked down and arrested Russ Albrecht, the leader of Silk Road, the billion dollar drug marketplace. And he tracked down and arrested Hector Monsegur, AKA Sabu of Lulsec and Anonymous, which are some of the most influential hacker groups in history. He is co-founder of Naxo, a complex cybercrime investigation firm, and is a co-host of a podcast called The Hacker and the Fed. This conversation gives the perspective of the FBI cybercrime investigator, both the technical and the human story. I would also like to interview people on the other side, the cybercriminals who have been caught, and perhaps the cybercriminals who have not been caught and are still out there. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We got True Classic Tees for shirts, Inside Tracker for biomonitoring, ExpressVPN for privacy, BetterHelp for mental health, and Blinkist for nonfiction. Choose wisely, my friends. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by True Classic Tees, high quality, soft, slim fitted t-shirts for men. They also make other menswear staples like polos, workout shirts, and boxers, but I have a lot of their black t-shirts. That's my main go-to. I'm not exactly sure why, but there's a certain kind of comfort in having a great t-shirt that all looks the same <laughs> and having many of them. So it removes that extra little decision in your life. So you can uh, liberate your mind to focus on the more difficult decisions in your life. So it's just this reliable thing I can count on. Either I wear a suit or I wear a True Classic Tee t-shirt. That's it. That's all I need to worry about. Life is simple. And uh, there's a kind of minimalist aesthetic to a black t-shirt that just uh, brings out the best in me, makes my soul sing. I think it's also in part a programmer aesthetic, engineer aesthetic. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I do know that a lot of programmers I hang out with often uh, wear black t-shirts. So I'm not sure what that's about. That could also just be in general a guy thing. I'm going to have to get some data on that. Anyway, go to trueclassic.com and enter code LEX to get 25% off. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track biological data. Your lifestyle decisions should be made based on data coming from your own body. I can't wait until the day that we have high bandwidth signal coming from the body at a frequency that is exceptionally high. So we have this short-term and long-term data about what's going on inside our body, just raw data. So machine learning algorithms can just interpret that data to make decisions based on. I mean, to me, that's such an exciting world of creating systems that are able to truly listen to our body. There's experiences I have by going to doctors. I think the job of a doctor is so difficult. They get just few little inklings into the symptoms you provide. There's some data they can collect. They can do MRIs and all that kind of scans. It's not a high resolution picture of what's going on in your body. Now, if you're the average case for a particular condition or disease or a particular issue you're having in your life, yeah, fine. But a lot of us are not the perfectly representative average case. In fact, most humans aren't. And so it makes sense that uh, 
we should be looking at that specific person to make decisions for that specific person. Anyway, get special savings for a limited time when you go to insidetracker.com slash flex. This show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. I use them to protect my privacy on the internet. This conversation talks a lot about Tor, which is a super extreme way to protect your privacy on the internet. Now, that's like advanced stuff. The basic stuff that everybody should be doing is a VPN, everybody. And my favorite VPN, long, long, long before they were a sponsor, has been ExpressVPN. Big sexy button, it just works, it's super fast. Any operating system, including Linux, whatever your favorite flavor of Linux is, and I've tried them all, I like all of the flavors. That's actually factually incorrect because I love all the flavors of Linux that I've tried, but there's a huge amount of them. I think there's a website called DistroWatch that looks at the popularity based on how often they're searched, I think, of uh, of different distributions of Linux. And it, it's kind of cool to see all the different flavors. It's really exciting how active the community is in the development of those flavors. Anyway, go to expressvpn.com slash legspod for an extra three months free. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, help. I think there's a lot of ways in which social media reveals the mental instabilities that we have, the sort of the roller coaster of life. And it's easy to lose yourself in that and not seek balance and... Uh, a deep exploration of your mind beyond that kind of shallow roller coaster. Now, I'm a huge believer of talk therapy as a way to do that kind of serious exploration, however you do that. And I think the great thing about BetterHelp is uh, it's super easy to do that. It makes it accessible to try. You get access to a licensed professional really quickly. Your mind is the most precious thing you have, so make sure you take care of it. It's easy, private, affordable, available anywhere. You can check it out at betterhelp.com slash Lex and save on your first month. This show is also brought to you by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. There's actually AI systems that I've recently been seeing pop up that do summarization. And let me tell you something. While that's nice and everything, they do not do nearly as good of a job as humans do, especially when those humans are the sort of world-class humans, whoever they are, behind Blinkist. There's really an extra level, an extra depth of insight that Blinkist is able to do for nonfiction books. It's not just that it's brief. It's also somehow reveals something new, even for books I've read. It's revisiting the summaries gives me a new perspective on that book. I don't know, it's really, really powerful. So I recommend it not just for books you haven't read, but also for books you have read. And it includes basically all the major nonfiction books you can think of. You can claim a special offer for savings if you visit Blinkist.com slash Lex. This is a Lex Friedman podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Chris Tarbell.
You are one of the most successful cybersecurity law enforcement agents of all time. You tracked and brought down Russ Albrecht, aka Dread Pirate Roberts, who ran Silk Road, and uh, Sabu of LulzSec and Anonymous, who was one of the most influential hackers in the world. So first, can you tell me the story of tracking down Russ Albrecht? and Silk Road. Let's start from the very beginning. And maybe let's start by explaining what is the Silk Road. It was really the first uh, dark market website. Um, you literally could buy anything there. Uh, I'll take that back. You couldn't. There's two things you couldn't buy there. You couldn't buy guns because that was a different website. Uh, and you couldn't buy fake degrees. So no one could become a doctor. Um, but you could buy literally whatever else you wanted. You could drugs. post things, drugs. You could buy heroin right from Afghanistan, the good stuff. Uh, hacking tools, you could hack for hire. You could buy murders for hire if you wanted someone killed. Now, so when I was an FBI agent, I had to kind of sell some of these cases. And this was a, a big drug case. You know, that's the way people saw Silk Road. So internally to the FBI, how I had to sell it, I had to find the worst thing on there that I could possibly find. Uh, and I think one time I saw a posting for uh, baby parts. So let's say that you, you know, had a young child and that needed a, a liver. You could literally go on there and ask for a six-month-old liver uh, if you wanted to. For like surgical operations versus something darker. Yeah, I never saw anything that dark as far as people like wanting to eat body parts. Yeah. Um, I did interview a, a cannibal once when I was in the FBI. That's a, another crazy story, but uh, but that that one actually weirded me out. Sorry, I just watched uh, Jeffrey Dahmer uh, documentary on Netflix, and it just changed the way I see human beings because it's a it's a it's a portrayal of a normal looking person doing uh, really dark things and doing so not out of a place of insanity, seemingly, but just because he has almost like a fetish for that kind of thing. It's disturbing that people like that are out there. So people like that would then be using Silk Road, not like that necessarily, but people of different walks of life would be using Silk Road to primarily, what was the prim primary thing, drugs? It was primarily drugs. And that's where it started. It started off with Ross Ulbricht growing mushrooms out in the wilderness of California and selling them. But really, his was more of a libertarian viewpoint. I mean, it was like, you choose what you want to do for yourself and do it. And, and the way Silk Road kind of had the anonymity is it used what's called Tor, or the, the onion router, which is uh, an anonymizing uh function on uh, on the deep web. It was actually invented by the U.S. Navy uh, back in the mid-90s or so. Um, but it also used cryptocurrency. So it was the first time that we saw this birth on the internet of mixing cryptocurrency uh, and uh, an IP blocking software. So, you know, in cybercrime, you go after one, the IP address and trace it through the network, or two, you go after the cash. And this one kind of blocked both. Cash meaning the flow of money, yeah. physical or digital. And then um, IP is the some kind of identifying thing of the computer. It's your telephone number for on your computer. So yeah, all all computers have you know a, a unique uh, four octet uh, numbers. You know, so one two three dot one two three dot one two three dot one two three. And it, you know, it, it, the computer uses DNS or domain name services to to render that name. So if you were looking for you know cnn.com, your computer then translates that to that IP address or that telephone number where it can find that information. Didn't Silk Road used to have guns in the beginning? Or, it, or, or was that considered to have guns? Or 
was didn't naturally emerge, and then Rust realized like this is not good. It went back and forth. Uh, I think there were guns on there, and it, he tried to police it. Um, you know, he uh, he told himself that the captain of the boat, so he had to follow his rules. So you know, he, I think he took off those posts eventually and, and moved guns elsewhere. What was the system of censorship that he used, like of selecting what is okay and not okay? I mean, it's him alone. It, He's the captain of the boat. Do you know? by chance if there was uh, a lot of debates and criticisms internally amongst the criminals of what is and isn't allowed. I mean, it's interesting to see a totally different moral code emerge that's outside the legal code of society. We did get the the server and was able to read all of the chat logs that what, yeah. that happened. I mean, all the records were there. Um, I don't remember big debates. I mean, there was a clear leadership. Yeah. Uh, and that was the final decision. That was the the CEO of Silk Road. And so primarily it was drugs and primarily out of an ideology of freedom, which is uh, if you want to use drugs, you should be able to use drugs. You should put in your body what you want to put in your body. And when you were presenting the case of why this should be investigated, you're trying to find, as you mentioned, the worst possible things on there. Is that what you were saying? So we had arrested a guy named Jeremy Hammond, and he hit himself. He was a hacker, and he, this when we arrested him, it was the second time he had been arrested for for hacking. Uh, he used Tor, um, and so that kind of brought us to a point. Um, the FBI has a computer system where you look up things. Uh, you know, you look up anything. I could look up your name or or whatever if you're associated with my case. And we were finding at the time a lot of things in you. Know, you look it up, it, the ca- a case would end. Be like, oh, this is Tor, and it just stopped. Like we couldn't get any further. Yeah. So, you know, we had just had this big arrest of uh, Sabu and took down Anonymous. And and sometimes in the FBI, um, the way it used to, the old school FBI, when you had a big case and you're working seven days a week and 14 hours, 15 hours a day, you sort of take a break. The boss kind of said, yeah, I'll see you in a few months. Go Go get to know your family a little bit, you know, and come back. But the group of guys I was with was like, let's find the next big challenge. And that's when we were finding, you know, case closed, it was Tor. Case closed, it was Tor. So said, let's take a look at Tor and let's see what we can do. Maybe we'll take a different approach. And Silk Road was being looked at by other law enforcement, um, but it was taking like a drug approach where I'm going to find a drug buyer who got, you know, the drug sent to them in the mail and let's arrest up. Let's go up the chain. But the buyers didn't know their dealers. They never met them. And so you were taking a cybersecurity approach. Yeah, we said, let's try to look at this from a cyber approach and see if we can uh, gleam anything out of it. So I'm actually indirectly connected Uh-oh. to, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not admitting anything that's not already on my FBI file. Oh, I can already tell you what you're going to tell me, though. What's that? That when you were at college, you wrote a paper and you're connected to the person that started you son Tor. of a bitch. You clever son of a bitch. I'm an FBI agent or a former <laughs> FBI agent. Well, how would I not have known no, but how, that? I could have told you other stuff. No, I that's exactly what stuff. you were about to tell me. I was looking up his name because I forgot it. So one of my advisors for my PhD was Rachel Greenstadt, and she is married to Roger Dingledine, which is the co-founder of the Tor Project. And I actually reached out to him last night to do a, to a podcast together. I don't know. He's, uh, <laughs> which... <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was it's a good it's a good party trick. I mean, it's it cool that you know this and the timing of it. It was just like beautiful. But um, just to linger on the on the tour project, so we understand. So tour is this um, black box that people disappear in, 
in terms of like the when you were tracking people. Can you paint a picture of what tours used in general? Are there, it's like uh, when you talk about Bitcoin, for example, or cryptocurrency, especially today, much more people use it for legal activity versus illegal activity. What about Tor? Tor was originally invented by the U.S. Navy so that like spies inside countries could talk to spies and no one could find them. Um, there was no way of tracing them. And then they released that information free to the world. So Tor has two different versions of, not versions, two different ways it can be utilized. Uh, there's .onion sites, which is like a normal website, a .com, but it's only found within the Tor browser. You can only get there if you know the whole address and get there. The other way Tor is used is to go through the internet and then come out the other side if you want a different IP address, if you're trying to hide your identity. So... If you were doing, like, say, cybercrime, I would have the victim computer, and I would trace it back out to a Tor relay. And then because you don't have an active connection or what's called a circuit at the time, I wouldn't be able to trace it back. But even if you had an active circuit, I would have to go to each machine physically live and try to rebuild that, which is literally impossible. So what do you feel about Tor ethically, philosophically, as a human being on this world that uh, spent quite a few years of your life and still trying to protect people. So part of my time in the FBI was working on child exploitation, kitty porn, as they call it. Um, that really changed my life in a way. And so anything that helps facilitate the exploitation of children fucking pisses me off. And I, I, I and that sort of jaded my opinion towards towards tour because that because it it helps facilitate those sites. So this ideal of freedom that Russell Albrecht, for example. Uh, tried to embody is something that you um, don't connect with anymore because of what you've seen that ideal being used for. I mean, the child exploitation is a specific example for it, you know, and it's, I can, it's easy for me to sit here and say child exploitation, child porn, because no one listening to this is ever going to say that I'm wrong and that we should allow child porn. Um, should, because some people utilize it in a bad way, should it go away? Um no, I mean, I, I'm a technologist. I, I want technology to move forward. Um, you know, people are going to do bad things and they're going to use technology to help them do bad things. Well, let me ask you then, uh, we'll jump around a little bit, but the things you were able to do in tracking down information, and we'll get to it, there is some suspicion that this was only possible with uh, mass surveillance, like with NSA, for example. Uh, first of all, is there any truth to that? And second of all, what do you feel are the pros and cons of mass surveillance? There is no truth to that. Uh, and then my feelings on mass surveillance. If, if there was, would you tell me? Probably not. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love this conversation so much. <laughs> but what do you feel about the, given that you said child porn, sure. what are the pros and cons of surveillance at a society level? I mean, nobody wants to give up their privacy. I say that. I say no one wants to give up their privacy. But I mean, I used to have to get a search warrant to look inside your house. Yeah. Or I can just log on to your Facebook and you've got pictures of all inside your house and what's going on. I mean, it's not, you know, so people like the idea of not giving up their privacy. Um, but they do it anyways. They, they're giving away their freedoms all the time. They're, they're, they're carrying watches that gives out their heartbeat to a weight of companies that are storing that. I mean, what's more personal than your heartbeat? So I, I think people, 
en masse really want to protect their privacy. And I would say most people don't really need to protect their privacy. But the case against mass surveillance is that if you want to criticize the government in a very difficult time, you should be able to do it. So when, when you need the freedom, you should have it. So when you wake up one day and realize there's something going wrong, wrong with the country I love, I want to be able to, uh, to help. And that the, one of the great things about uh, the United States of America is there's that individual revolutionary spirit, like so that the, the government doesn't become too powerful. You can always protest. There's always the best of the ideal of freedom of speech. You can always say, fuck you to the man. And I think there's a concern of direct or indirect suppression of that through mass surveillance. You might not, is that, that little subtle fear that grows with time that, uh, why, you know, why bother criticizing the government? Uh, it's gonna be a headache, I'm gonna get a ticket every time I say something bad, that kind of thing. So it, gets out, it can get out of hand, the bureaucracy grows and uh, the freedoms slip away. It's, that's, the, that's the criticism, right? I completely see your point and I agree with it. I mean, it, but I mean, on the other side, people criticize the government of these freedoms, but I mean, tech companies are talk about destroying your privacy and controlling what you can say. I realize they're private platforms and, and you, they can decide what's on their platform. Uh, but, you know, they're taking away your freedoms of what you can say. And we've heard certain, some things where maybe government officials were in line with, uh, with tech companies to take away some of that freedom. And that's, I, I agree with you, that gets scary. Yeah, there's something about government that feels, maybe because of the history of human civilization, maybe because tech companies are a new thing, but just knowing the history of abuses of government, it, there's something about government that enables the corrupting nature of power to take hold at scale more than tech companies, at least what we've seen so far. Yeah, I, I agree, I agree. But I mean, we haven't had a voice like we've had until recently. I mean, anyone that has a Twitter account now can speak and become a, a news article. Um, you know, my parents didn't have that, didn't have that voice. If they wanted to speak out against the government or do something, they had to go to a protest or organize a protest or, you know, do something along those lines. So, you know, we have more of a place to put our voice out now. Yeah, it's incredible, but that's why it hurts. And that's why you notice it when certain voices get removed. The president of the United States of America was removed from one such or all such platforms. And that hurts. Yeah, that's crazy to me. That's insane. That's insane that we we, we took that away. But let's return to uh, to Silk Road and Russ Albrecht. So how did your path with this very difficult, very fascinating case uh, cross? We were looking to open a case against Tor because it was a problem. All the cases were closing uh, because Tor. So we went on Tor and we we came up with 26 web different onion, dot onions that we targeted. We were looking for nexuses to hacking because I was on a squad called CY2 and we were like the premier um, squad in New York that was working uh, uh, criminal cyber intrusions. And so, you know, any website that was offering hackers for hire or um, hacking tools for free, you know, or pay, paid services, uh, you know, like now we're seeing ransomware as a paid service and phishing as a paid service, um, anything that offered that. So we opened this case on, on uh, I think we called it, we, so you have to name cases. One of the fun things in the FBI is when you start a case, you get to name it. And you, 
you would not believe how much time is spent in coming up with the name. Yeah. Um, you know, Casey goes, I think we called this onion peeler because nice. of the, yeah. So a little bit of humor, a little bit of wit, and some profundity to the language. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you're gonna I, have to work with this for, for quite a lot. So yeah, this one had the potential of being a big one, you know, because I think I think Silk Road was like the sixth on the list uh, uh, for that case. But we all knew that was sort of the golden ring. If you could make the splash that that onion site was going down, then it would probably get some publicity. And, and that's part of you know law enforcement is getting some publicity out of it that you know that makes others think not to do it. I would just say that Tor is the name of the project, the browser. What is the Onion technology behind Tor? Let's say you want to go to a .onion site. You'll you'll put in the .onion you want to go to, and your computer will build uh, communications with a Tor relay, uh, which are all publicly available out there. Um, but you'll encrypt it. You'll put a package around uh, your data, and so it's, it's encrypted, and so can't read it. It goes to that that first relay. That first relay knows about you, and then knows about the next relay down the chain. And so it takes your data and then encrypts that on the outside and sends it to relay number two. Now, relay number two only knows about relay number one. It doesn't know who you are asking for this. And it goes through there, adding those layers on top, layers of encryption until it gets where it is. That, and then even the Onion service doesn't know, except for the, the relay it came from, who it's talking to. And so it peels back that gives the information, puts another layer back on. And so it's it's layers like you're peeling an onion back of uh, the different relays, and that encryption protects uh, who the sender is and what information they're sending. The more layers there are, the more exponentially difficult it is to decrypt it. I mean, you get to a place where you don't have to have so many layers because it, it doesn't matter anymore. It's mathematically impossible to yeah. <laughs> decrypt it. But, yeah, um, you know... It, the more relays you have, the slower it is. I mean, that's the, one of the big drawbacks on, on Tor is, is, is how slow it operates. So how do you peel the onion? So what, what are the different methodologies for trying to get some information from a cybersecurity perspective on these operations like the Silk Road? It's very difficult. Um, people have come up with different techniques. There, um, there, there's been techniques to put out in the in the news media uh, about how they do it. Um, running like massive amounts of relays, and, and you're controlling those relays. I think I think someone tried that once. So there's a technical solution, and and what about social engineering? What about trying to infiltrate the actual humans that are using the the Silk Road and trying to get in that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely could see the, the way of doing that. And in, in this case, uh, in, in our takedown, we use that. Um, there was one of my partners, uh, Jared Derryagan. He was an HSI investigator, and he had worked his way up to be a system admin on the site. Um, so that did gleam quite a bit of information because he was he was inside and, and talking to, uh, you know, at that time, we only know it as DPR or Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh, we didn't know who who that was yet, but, but we had that open communication. Um, you know, and one of the things, you know, the technical aspects on that is there was a Jabber server that was, uh, that's a communication type of communication server um, that was being used. And we knew that Ross had his Jabber set to uh, Pacific time. So we had a pretty good idea what, what part of the, the, we, what part of the country he was in. I mean, isn't that from, from, from DPR's perspective, from Ross's perspective, isn't that clumsy? He wasn't a, a, a he wasn't a big computer guy. Do you notice that aspect of like the technical savvy of some of these guys doesn't seem to be quite 
Why, why weren't they good at this? Well, the, the real techie savvy ones, we don't arrest. We don't get to them. We don't you find don't them. get to them. <laughs> Shout out to the techie uh, criminals. They're probably watching this. I mean, yeah, I mean, you were getting the low-hanging fruit. I mean, you were getting the ones that can be caught. I mean, they, they, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the anonymous case, there was a guy named AV Unit. He's still, I lose sleep over him because I we didn't catch him. We caught everybody else. We didn't catch him. He's good, though. He pops up, too, once in a while on the internet, and it pisses me off. Yeah, what's his name again? <laughs> AV Unit. That's all I know is his AV Unit. AV Unit. Yeah, I got a funny story about, about him and what who people think he is. Can I actually, can we go on that brief tangent? Sure, I love tangents. <laughs> well, let me ask you, um, since he's probably he or she, do we know it's a he? We have no idea. Okay. I mean, that's another funny story about hackers, the he, she issue. What's the funny story there? Well, one of the guys in Lulsec was a, was a she, was a 17-year-old girl. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my source in the case, the the guy, Sabu, that I, I arrested and part of it, and, you know, we sat side by side for nine months and then took down you know the case and all that he was convinced she was a girl and said you know and he, he was in love with her almost as at one point it turns out to be a 35 year old guy that, living in england oh so he was convinced it was a uh, uh it was <laughs> yes he was absolutely based convinced. on what exactly by linguistic like human-based linguistic analysis or what she she, he, uh, whatever, you know, Kayla is what we went, which ended up being like a, a modification of his sister's name, the, the real guy's sister's name, was so good at building the backstory. All these guys, and, and it's funny, like these guys are part of a hacking crew. They social engineer the shit out of each other. Yeah. Just to build, if one of them ever gets caught, they'll convince the everybody else that, you know, they're a Brazilian, uh, you know, ISP owner or something like that. And that's how I'm so powerful. Well, yeah, that social engineering aspect is part of living a life of cybercrime or cybersecurity on the offensive or defensive. So AV unit, can I ask you also just a, a tangent of a tangent first? That's my favorite tangent. Okay. Um, is it possible for me to have a podcast conversation with somebody who hasn't been caught yet and because they have the conversation, they still won't be caught? And is that a good idea? Meaning, is there a safe way for a criminal to talk to me on a podcast? I would think so. I would think they, that, that someone could, I mean, someone who has been living a double life for, for long enough where you think they're not a criminal. Um, I, no, no, no. They would have to admit that they, they would say, I am uh, AV unit. Oh, you would want to have a conversation with AV unit? Yes. Um, is there a way? I'm just speaking yeah. from an FBI perspective, technically speaking. Because I, I so let, let me explain my motivation. Sure. I think I would like to be able to talk to people from all walks of life and understanding criminals, understanding their mind, I think is very important. And I think there's fundamentally something different between a criminal who's still active versus one that's been caught. The mind, just from observing it, changes completely once you're caught. You you have a, a big shift in your understanding of the world. Um, I mean, the, I do have a question about the ethics of having such conversations, but first, technically, sure. uh, is is that is it possible? If I was technically advising you, I would say first off, don't advertise it. Don't the fewer people that you're going to tell that you're having this conversation with, the better. Um, and yeah, you could, 
Are you doing it in person? Or are you doing it in, in person? Would be amazing, yeah. But they their face would not be shown. Face would not be shown. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't publish the show for a while. They'd have to put a lot of trust in you that you are not going to. You're going to have to alter those tapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say tapes because it's old school. The opera, you know, it's a tape. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure a lot of people just said that. Like, oh shit, this old guy just said tape. <laughs> I heard a v- VHS was in the 1800s. I think, um, um, but. Yeah, uh, yeah, you could do it. They'd, they'd have to have complete faith and trust in you that you destroy the originals after you've altered it. What about if they don't have faith? Is there a way for them to attain security? Um, so, uh, like, for me to go through some kind of process where I meet them somewhere where... I mean, you're not going to do it without a bag over your head. I don't know if that's the life you want to live. <laughs> I'm fine with a bag over my head. That's going to get taken out of context. But I just, I think it's a worthy effort. It's a worth. It's worthy to go through the hardship of that to understand the mind of somebody. I think fundamentally, conversations are a different thing than the operation of law enforcement. Understanding the mind of a criminal, I think, is really important. I don't know if you're going to have the honest conversation that you're looking for. I mean, it may sound honest, but it may not be the truth. I found most times when I was talking to criminals, it's lies mixed with half-truths. And you kind of, it's if they're good, they can keep that story going for long enough. Uh, If they're not, you know, you kind of see the relief in them when you finally break that wall down. That's the job of an interviewer. If the interviewer is good, then uh, perhaps not directly, but through the gaps seeps out the truth of the human being. So not necessarily the details of how they do the operations and so on, but just who they are as a human being, what their motivations are, what their ethics are, how they see the world, what is good, what is evil. Do they see themselves as good? What do they see their motivation as? Do they have resentment? What do they think about love for the people within their small community? Do they have resentment for the government or for other nations or for other people? Do they have childhood issues that led to to a different view of the world than others perhaps have? Do they have certain fetishes like sexual and otherwise that led to the construction of the world? Uh, they might be able to reveal some deep flaws to the cybersecurity infrastructure of our world, not in detail, but like philosophically speaking, they might have, I I know you might say it's just a narrative, but they might have a kind of ethical concern for the well-being of the world, that they're essentially attacking the weakness of the cybersecurity infrastructure because they believe ultimately that would lead to a safer world. So the attacks will reveal the weaknesses. And if they're stealing a bunch of money, that's okay because that's going to enforce you to invest a lot more money in defending, um, yeah, defending things that actually matter, you know, nuclear warheads and all those kinds of things. I mean, I could, I, I could see, if, you know, it's fascinating to explore the mind of a human being like that because um, I think it will help people understand. Now, of course, uh, it's still a person that's creating a lot of suffering in the world, which is a problem. So do you think ethically it's a good thing to do? I don't. I mean, I I feel like I have a fairly high ethical bar that I have to put myself on, and I don't think I have a problem with it. I would love to listen to it. Okay, great. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm your ethical coacher here. Yeah, anything, but, uh, well, that's but, interesting. I mean, so because I thought you would have become jaded and exhausted by the criminal 
um, mind. It's funny. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, fast forward in our story. I'm very good friends with, with Hector Monsignor, the Sabu, the guy I arrested. Um, and he tells stories of what he did in his past. And I'm like, oh, I'm that Hector, you know, <laughs> you know, but then I listened to your episode with Brett Johnson mm -hmm. and I was like, ah, this guy stealing money from, from the U S government and yeah. welfare fraud and all this sort of things. It just pissed me off. And I don't know why I have that differentiation in my head i don't know why i think one's just oh hector will be hector and then this guy just pissed me off well you didn't feel that way about hector until you probably met him well i didn't know hector i knew sabu so i hunted down sabu and i learned about hector over those nine months we'll, we'll talk about it sure. let's finish with yeah, yeah, uh, let's return tangent to back to attention oh one tangent up who's av unit I don't That's know. Interesting. So he's at the core of Anonymous. He's one of the critical people in Anonymous. What is known about him? There's what's known in public and what was known because uh, I sat with Hector. And um, he was sort of like the the set things up guy. Um, so if Lulsec had like their hackers, which was Sabu and Kayla, and they had their, uh, their, their media guy, this guy Topiary, up, he lived up in the northern end of England, and uh, they had a few other guys. But but AV Unit was the guy that set up infrastructure. So if you need a VPN in Brazil or something like that to pop through, um, one of the first things Hector told me after we arrested him is that AV Unit was a Secret Service agent, and I was like, oh shit, <laughs> um, just because he kind of lived that lifestyle. He'd be around for a bunch of days, and then all of a sudden gone for three weeks. Um, and I, I trying to get more out of Hector but, but, uh, that early on in that relationship. Um, you know, I'm sure he was a little bit guarded, uh, maybe trying to social engineer me. Maybe he wanted that, uh, that, oh shit, there's law enforcement involved in this. Um, and, and not to say, I mean, I, I was in over my head with that case, just the amount of work that was going on. Um, so to track them all down, um, plus the 350 hacks that came in about just military institutions. Um, you know, it, it was swimming in the deep end. Um, so it was just at the end of the case, I looked back and I was like, oh, fuck, Amy Unit, I could have had them all. Uh, you know, maybe that's the perfectionist in me. Oh, man. Well, reach out somehow. Mm -hmm. I can't, I won't say how, right? We'll have to figure well, out. Would you have them on? Yeah. Oh my God. If, if you just let me know, and just, just let talk me know shit before. about you the whole time. That, that's perfect. He probably doesn't even care about me. But well, now he will. Oh, yeah. Because there's a certain pleasure of a guy who's extremely good at his job not catching another guy who's extremely good at his job. Obviously, better. He got away. Better. There you uh, go. He's still eating at you. I love it. Yeah. So, oh, he I, or I, she. If I can meet <laughs> that guy one day, he or she, that'd be great. I mean, I have no power. So yes, Silk Road, can you speak to the scale of this thing? What, what Just for people who are not familiar, uh, how big was it? Uh, and w any other interesting things you understand about its operation when it was active? So it was uh, when we finally got looking through the books and you know the the numbers came out as about 1.2 billion dollars in sales it's kind of hard with the fluctuation value of bitcoin at the time to come up with a real number so you kind of pick a daily average you know and go across so most of the operation was done in, in bitcoin it's all done in bitcoin you you couldn't you had escrow accounts on you know you came in and you put money in an escrow account and you know it, the transaction wasn't done until the client got the the drugs or whatever they had bought um, and then the drug dealers had, had sent it in. 
there was some talk at the time that that the cartel was starting to sell on there. Um, so that started getting a little hairy there at the end. What was the understanding of the relationship between organized crime, like the cartels, and this kind of more ad hoc, new age uh, market that is the Silk Road? I mean, it was all just chatter. It was just, you know, because like I said, Jared was on the inside, so we saw some of it from, from the admin sides. And Ross had a lot of private conversations with the different people that he had advised him. Um, but no one knew each other. I mean, the only thing the only thing that, that they knew was the admins had to send an ID to Ross, had to send a picture of their driver's license or passport, which I always found very strange because if you are an admin on a site that sells fake IDs, mm-hmm. Why would you send your real ID? And then why would the guy running the site who profits from selling fake IDs believe that it was? But fast forward, yeah. tangent, they were all real IDs. All the IDs that we found on Ross's computer as the admins were the real people's IDs. What do you make of that? Just <laughs> I don't, other clumsiness? Yeah, low-hanging fruit, I guess. I guess that's what it is. I mean, I mean, I would have bought, I mean, even Ross bought fake IDs off the site. He had federal agents knock on his door. Um, you know, and then he got a little cocky about it. The landscape, the dynamics of trust is fascinating here. So you trust certain ideas are like, who do you trust in that kind of market? What was your understanding of the network of trust? I don't think anyone trusts anybody, you know? I mean, I think Ross had his advisors of trust, but outside of that, I mean, he required people to send their ID for their trust. He, you know, people stole from him. Uh, there was, there's open cases of that. Um, it's a criminal world. You can't trust anybody. What was his life like, you think? Lonely. Can you imagine being trapped in something like that where you the, your whole world focused on that and you can't tell people what you do all day? Could he have walked away? Like someone else take over or the site just shut down? Either one. Just you put, putting yourself in his shoes, the loneliness, the the anxiety, the just the growing immensity of it. So walk away with some kind of financial stability. I couldn't have made it past two days. I, I'm not, I don't like loneliness. I mean, my I, if my wife's away, I probably call her 10, 12 times a day. We just talk about things. You know, I just, you know, oh, something crossed my mind. I want to talk about it. And I'm sure she... And you like to talk to her, like, honestly about everything. So if you were running Silk Road, <laughs> you, you wouldn't be able to, like... Uh, Hopefully, I'd have a little protection. I'd only mention to her when we were in bed um, to have that marital uh, connection. But but who knows? I mean, she's going to question why the Ferrari is outside and, <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you can come up with something. Why didn't he walk away? It's another question of why don't criminals walk away in these situations? Well, I, I mean, I don't know every criminal mind, and some do. I mean, AV Unit walked away. I mean, That's not to go back know. to that son of a bitch, but. <laughs> <laughs> There's a theme to this. But, you know, uh, Ross started counting his dollars. I mean, he really kept track of how much money he was making, and, and it started, you know, getting exponentially growth. I mean, he, I mean, if he would have stayed at it, he would have probably been one of the richest people in the world. And do you think he liked the actual money or the fact of the number growing? I mean, have you ever held a Bitcoin? Oh, you have? Well, he never did. What do you did. mean hold the Bitcoin? You can't hold it. It's not real. Oh, it's not, oh, it's not yeah. like I can give you a no. briefcase of Bitcoin <laughs> right, like, you know, right. or something like that. Yeah. It, he liked the idea of it growing. He liked the idea. I mean, I think it started off as sharing this idea, but then he really did turn to, like, I am the captain of this ship, and that's what goes. And he was making a lot of money. And again, 
my interactions with Ross was about maybe five or six hours over a over a two day period. Um, I knew DPR because I read his words and all that. I didn't really know Ross. Um, there was a journal found on his computer, and so it sort of kind of gave me a little inside. Um, th- so I don't like to do a playbook for criminals, but I'll tell you right now, don't write things down. Um, there was a big fad about people like remember kids going around shooting people with paintballs and filming it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you would do that. Why would you videotape yourself committing crime and then publish it? Like, uh, if there's one thing I've taught my children, don't record yourself doing bad things. It never goes but goes well. So, and you actually give advice in the other end of uh, logs being very useful for the defense perspective, uh, for you know, inf- information is useful for being able to figure out what the attacks were all about. Logs are the only reason I found Hector Monsegor. I mean, the the one time his uh, VPN dropped during a, a Fox hack, and I, he says he did it wasn't even hacking. He just was sent a link and he clicked on it. And in ten million lines of uh, of logs, there was one IP address that stuck out. This is fascinating. We'll we'll explore several angles of that. So, um, wh- uh, what was the process of bringing down Ross and uh, the Silk Road? All right, so that's a long story. You want the whole thing or you want to break it up? Let's start at the beginning. Once we had the information of the chat logs and all that from the server, we found- What's the server? What's the chat log? So the Dot Onion was uh, running, the, the website, the Silk Road, was running on a server in Iceland. How did you figure that out? That was one of the uh, claims that the NSA- yeah, that's 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 the one that that we said that that yeah I wouldn't tell you if it was that it's yeah. on the internet. I mean, the internet has their conspiracy theories and yeah. all that. So. so, but you figure out that's the part of the thing you do. You it's puzzle pieces and you have to put them together yeah. and look for different pieces of information and figure out. Okay, so you figure out the server is in Iceland. We get a copy of it, and so we start getting clues off of that. And we Wait, s- the physical copy of the server? Yeah, we flew. You, you fly over there, so you you go. If you've been to Iceland, if, you, if you've never been, you should definitely go to Iceland. Uh, is it beautiful? I or? love it. I love it. It was what so I'll tell you this so sorry tangents I, you know, yeah, I, I, I love tangents. this yeah so i went to iceland for the anonymous case then i went to iceland for the silk road case and i was like oh shit all cyber crime goes through iceland um it was just my sort of thing and i was over there for like the third time and i said if i ever can bring my family here like so there's a place called thingavar and i'm sure i'm fucking up the name the icelandics are pissed right now but it's where the the north american continental plate and the European continental plate are pulling apart, and it's being filled in with uh, volcanic uh, material in the in the middle, and it's so cool. Like I was like, one day I'll be able to afford to bring my family here. Um, and and once I left, it's just like the humbling and the beauty of nature, just everything, man. It was a different world. It was it was it was insane how great Iceland is. And so we went back and we we rented a van and we took friends and um, we drove around the entire country. Uh, absolutely, uh, like uh, a beautiful place. Like Reykjavik's nice, but get out of Reykjavik as quick as you can and see the countryside. How is this place even real? Well, it's so new. I mean, that's so you know our rivers have been going through here for millions of years and flattened everything out and all that. These, these are these are new. This is new land being carved by these rivers. You can walk behind a waterfall in one place. Um, it, it's it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. You understand why this is a place where a lot of hacking is being done. Because the energy is free and it's co- it's cool, so you have a lot of servers going on there. Server farms, you know, they're they're the energy has come up out out of the ground, geothermal, um, and so and then it keeps all the servers nice and cool. So why not keep your computers there at a cheap rate? 
uh, I'll, def- I'll definitely <laughs> visit for several reasons, including to uh, talk to AV Unit. Yeah, he'll meet uh, you there. <laughs> well, the servers are there, but they don't probably live there. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, the Pacific, uh, the PSC, the time zones. It's pretty, there's so many fascinating things to explore here. Well, but so you got. Sorry, to add to that, the, yes. I mean, the European internet cable goes through there. So, you know, across to Greenland and down through Canada and all that. So they have backbone access with cheap energy and uh, free cold weather, you know. So, and beautiful. Oh, and beautiful, yes. So chat logs on that server. What are, what are the what are, what was in the chat logs? Everything. He kept them all. That's another issue. If you're running a criminal enterprise, please don't keep all. Again, I'm not making a guidebook of how to commit the perfect crime, uh, but you know, he, every chat he ever had, and everyone's chat. It was it was like going into Facebook of criminal activity. Yeah, I'm just looking at texts with Elon Musk being part of the conversations. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but they've been made public for the court case he's going through, was going through, is going through, was going through with Twitter. I don't know where it is. Um, but it made me realize that, oh, okay. Uh, I'm generally, that's my philosophy on life is like anything I text or email or say publicly or privately, I should be proud of. So I tried to kind of do that because you basically, you say don't keep chat logs, but it's very difficult to erase chat logs from this world. Like, I guess if you're a criminal, that should be, um, like you have to be exceptionally competent at that kind of thing. To erase your footprints is very, very difficult. Can't make one mistake. All it takes is one mistake of keeping it. But, But yeah, I mean, not only do you have to be Whatever you put in a chat log or whatever you put in an email, it has to hold up and you have to be able to stand behind it publicly when it comes out. But it has, if it comes out 10 years from now, you have to stand behind it. I mean, we're seeing that now in today's society. Yeah, but that's a responsibility you have to take really, really seriously. If, like, if I was a parent and advising teens, like you kind of have to teach them that. I, I, I know there's a sense like, no, we'll become more accustomed to that kind of thing. But in reality, nope. I think in the future we'll still be held responsible for the weird shit we do. Yeah, a friend of mine, his daughter got kicked out of college because of something she posted in high school. And the shittiest thing for him, but great for my kids. Great lesson. Look over there and you don't want that to happen to you. Yeah. Okay. So in the chat logs was uh, useful information, like uh, 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 breadcrumbs of what, of information that you can then pull at. Yeah, great evidence and stuff, you know, I mean, obviously. evidence too. Yeah, a lot of evidence. I mean, you're, you're I, here's a, a sale of this much heroin because, you know, Ross ended up getting charged with czar status on certain things. And that's, there's, there's it's a certain weight in each, each type of drug and that you had, like, I think it's, it's four or five employees of your empire and that you made more than $10 million. And so it's, 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 you know, it's just like what the narco traffickers get charged with or, you know, uh, anybody out of Colombia, you know, so. And that was primarily what he was, charged with during when he was arrested is the drug yeah and he got charged with some of the hacking tools too okay because he's in prison what for two life life sentences plus 40 years and no possibility of parole in the federal system there's no possibility of parole when you have life the only way you get out is if the president pardons you there's always a chance There, there is i think it was close uh I heard I heard rumors that it was close. Uh, well, right. So it depends. Given it's fascinating, but given the political, the ideological ideas that he represented and espoused, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been asked before who, you know, who does he get out of prison first or does Snowden come back into America? And I, I don't know. I have no Snowden idea. just became a Russian citizen. I saw that. And I just, yeah, I've heard a lot of good, weird theories about that one. Well, actually, uh, on another tangent, let me ask you, do you think Snowden is um, a good or a bad person? A bad person. Can you make the case that he's a bad person? There's ways of being a whistleblower, and and there, there's there's rules set up on how to do that. Um, he he didn't follow those rules. I mean, they they, you know, I'm red, white, and blue, so I, I'm pretty. You know, I, I was, so you I think his actions were anti-American? I think the results of his actions were anti-American. I don't know if his actions were anti-American. Do you think he could have anticipated the the negative consequences of his action? Yes. Should we judge him by the consequences or the ideals of the intent of his actions? I think we all get to judge him by based our own beliefs, but I believe what he did was wrong. Can you steel man the case that he's actually uh, a good person and good for this country, for the United States of America, uh, as a flag bearer for the the whistleblowers, the, the check on the power of government? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not big government type guy, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, even that sounds weird coming from a government guy for so many years. Um, but it, there's rules in place for a reason. I mean, he put, you know, some of our best capabilities, um, he made them publicly available. Um, they really kind of set us back in the, and this isn't my world at all, but the offensive side of, of cybersecurity. Right. So he revealed stuff that he didn't need to reveal in order to make the point. Correct. The, so, so you, if you can imagine a world where he leaked stuff that revealed the mass surveillance efforts and not reveal other stuff. Like yeah, is the, is the he, mass surveillance, I mean, that's the thing that, uh, of course, there's in the interpretation of that, there's fear mongering, but at the core, that was a real shock to people that um, it's possible for government to collect data at scale. It's surprising to me that people are that shocked by it. Well, there's conspiracies, and then there's like actual uh, evidence that that is happening. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a reality. There's a lot of reality that people ignore, but when it hits you in the face, you realize, holy shit, we're living in a new world. This is this is the new reality, and we have to deal with that reality. Just like you work in cybersecurity, I think it really hasn't hit most people how fucked we all are in terms of cybersecurity. Okay, let me rephrase that. <laughs> how many dangers there are in the digital world, how much under attack we all are, and how more uh, intense the attacks are getting, and how difficult the defense is, and how important it is, and how much we should value it, and all the different things we should do at the small and large scale to defend. Like most people really haven't woken up. They think about privacy mm. from tech companies. They don't think about attacks. Cyber attacks. People don't think they're a target, and it's a, it, it, that message has definitely has to get out there. I mean, you know, if you have a voice, you're a target. If uh, the place you work, you might be a target. You know, so your husband might work at some place. You know, and they, because now people are working from home, so they're going to target. You know, target you to get access to to his network in order to get in. Well, in that same way, the idea that uh, the U.S. government or any government could be doing mass surveillance on its citizens is um, is one that w was a wake up call. Because you could imagine the ways in which that could um, be, a, uh, like you could abuse the power of that 
to control citizenry for political reasons and purposes. Absolutely. You know, you could abuse it. I I think during the part of the Snowden League saw that two NSA guys were uh, monitoring like their girlfriends. And there's rules in place for that. Those people should be punished for abusing that. But how else are we going to hear about, you know, terrorists that are in the country talking about birthday cakes? Uh, and, you know, that was a case where that, that was the trip word that, that you know, we're going to go bomb New York City's subway. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, but it just feels like there should be some balance of transparency. There should be a check in that power. Because, like, you, you know, in the name of the war on terror, you, you can sort of uh, sacrifice. There is a trade-off between security and freedom, uh, but it just feels like there's a giant slippery slope on the sacrificing of freedom in the name of security. I hear you. And, and you know, we, we live in a world where, well, I live in a world where I had to tell you exactly how, when I arrested someone, I had to write a 50-page document of how I arrested you uh, and all the probable cause I have against you and all that. Well, you know, bad guys are reading that. They're reading how I caught you and they're changing their way they're doing things. They're changing their MO. Um, you know, they're doing it to be more secure. If, you know, we tell people how we're monitoring, you know, how what we're surveilling, we're going to lose that. I mean, the, the the terrorists are just going to go a different way. And I'm not trying to. I'm, again, I'm not big government. I'm not trying to say that you know it's cool that that, that we're monitoring the U.S. government's monitoring everything. Um, you know, big tech's monitoring everything. They're just monetizing it versus uh, possibly using it against you. But there is a balance, and those 50 pages they have a lot of value. Um, they make your job harder, but they prevent you from abusing the power of the job. Yeah. There's a balance. Yeah. That's a tricky balance. So the chat logs in Iceland gave you evidence uh, of the heroin and all the, the large-scale czar-level uh, drug trading. Uh, what else did it give you in terms of the how to catch? It gave us infrastructure. So the Onion name was actually running on a server in France. So if you, like... And it only commuted through a, a back channel of VPN um, to connect to the Iceland server. Um, there was a um, Bitcoin like kind of vault server that was also in Iceland. And I think that was so that the admins couldn't get into the Bitcoins, the other admins that were hired to work on the site. So you could get into the site, but you couldn't touch the money. Only Ross had access to that. And then, you know, another another big mistake on Ross's part is he had the backups for everything at a data center in Philadelphia. Don't put your infrastructure in the United States. I mean, again, let's not make a playbook, but, you know. Well, I, I think these are low-hanging fruit that people of competence would know already. Yeah, um, I, I agree. But it's interesting that he wasn't competent enough to make, so he was incompetent in certain ways. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he was a mastermind of setting up an, an infrastructure that would protect his, uh, his his online business. Because you know, keeping chat logs, keeping a diary, putting infrastructure where it shouldn't be, um, it's bad decisions. How did uh, you figure out that he's in San Francisco? So we had that part with Jared that he was on the West Coast, and then who again is Jared? 
Jerry Dagan was a he was a partner um, in uh, he he was a DHS agent um, worked for HSI Homeland Security Investigations in Chicago. Uh, he started his Silk Road investigation because he was working at O'Hare and a weird package came in. Um, come to find out, he traced it back to Silk Road. So he 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 started working a Silk Road investigation long before I started my case, and he made his way up undercover all the way to be an admin on Silk Road. Um, so he I was talking to Ross on a Jabber server, the a private Jabber server, private chat communication server. And, uh, we noticed that Ross's, um, time zone on that Jabber server was set to the West coast. So we, we had Pacific time on there. So we had a, a region one twenty fourth of the world was covered, uh, of where we thought he might be. <laughs> and from there, how do you get to San Francisco? There was another guy, an IRS agent that was part of the team, and he used a powerful tool um, to find uh, his clue. Um, he used the world of Google. Okay. Uh, he simply just went back and Googled around for uh, Silk Road at the time it was coming up and found some posts on like some help forums that this guy was starting an onion website and wanted some cryptocurrency help and uh, if you could help him please reach out to ross.albrick at gmail.com um in my world uh that that's a clue so okay so that that's as simple as that yeah and the the name he used on that post was frosty yeah so was, you had to connect frosty and other uses in frosty and here's a gmail and the gmail has the name the gmail posted that that i need help under the name frosty on this forum so what's the connection of frosty elsewhere the person logging into the philadelphia backup server the name of the computer was frosty yeah another clue in my world <laughs> and that's it the name is there the connection to the philadelphia server and then to iceland is there and so the rest is small details in terms of uh or is there interesting details? No, I mean, there's some electronic surveillance uh, that find Ross Albrecht living in a house. And is there, you know, is a computer at his house attaching to, uh, uh, you know, does it have tour traffic at the same time that DPR is on? Um, another big clue. <laughs> Matching up time frames. Again, just putting your email out there, putting your name out there like that. Like what I see from that, just at the scale of that market, what what I what it just makes me wonder how many criminals are out there that are not making these low hanging fruit mistakes, and are still successfully operating. It, to me, it seems like you could be a criminal. Much it's much easier to be a criminal on the internet. What else to you is interesting to understand about that case uh, of Russ and and Silk Road and just the history of it from your own. Uh, relationship with it from a cybersecurity perspective, from an ethical perspective, all that kind of stuff. Like when you look back, what, what's interesting to you about that case? I think my views on the case have changed over time. I mean, it was my job back then. Um, so I just looked at it as of, you know, I'm going after this. I sort of made a name for myself in the bureau for the anonymous case. And then this one was just, I mean, this was a bigger deal. I mean, uh, they flew me down to DC to meet with the director about this case. Um, the president of the United States was going to announce this case, the arrest. Unfortunately, the government shut down two days before. Um, so it was just us. And, and that's really the only reason I had any publicity out of it is because the government shut down. And the only thing that went public was that affidavit with my signature at the end. 
Um, otherwise, it would have just been the the attorney general and the president announcing the rest of this this big thing, and you wouldn't have seen me. Did you understand that this was a big case? Yeah, like, I knew it the moment. Yeah, I knew it the time. Was it because of the scale of it or what it stood for? I just knew that the public was going to react, going to react in a big way. Like the media was now. Did I think that it was going to be on the front page of every newspaper the, the day after the arrest? No, but I could sense it. Like I went like three or four days without sleep. Um, when I was out in San Francisco to arrest Ross, I had sent three guys to Iceland to, um, so it was a three prong approach for the takedown. It was get Ross, get the bitcoins and seize the site like we didn't want someone else taking control of the site and we wanted that big splash of that banner like look look the government found this site like you might not want to think about doing this again so and you were able to pull off all three maybe that's my superpower i'm really good about putting smarter people on the, than i am yeah. uh, together and on the right things um, you know, I've, I've done it's the only way to do it in yeah. the business I formed. That's what I did. I hired only smarter people than me. And I, you know, I'm not that smart, but you know, uh, smart enough to know who the smart people are. The team was able to do all three. Yeah. We were able to get all three done. Um, yeah. And the one guy, one of the guys, the main guys I sent to Iceland, man, he was so smart. Like I sent another guy from the FBI to, um, to France to get that part and he couldn't do it. So the guy in Iceland did it from, from Iceland <laughs> They had to pull some stuff out of memory on a computer. Um, you know, it's, it's live process stuff. I'm sure you've done that before, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure you've did. Look, look what you're doing. <laughs> you're this is, this is like a multi-layer interrogation going on. Uh, uh, was there a concern that somebody else would step in and control the site? Absolutely. We 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 didn't have insight on who exactly I control. So it turns out that Ross had uh, like dictatorial control. So he, it wasn't easy to delegate to somebody else. He hadn't. I think he had some sort of ideas. I mean, his diary talked about walking away and giving it to somebody else, but he, he didn't. Uh, he couldn't give up that control on anybody, apparently. Which makes you think that power corrupts, and his ideals were not as strong as he espoused about. Because if if it was about the the freedom of being able to buy drugs, if you want to then he surely should have found ways to delegate that power. Well, he changed over time. You could see it in his writings um, that he changed. Like, So people will argue back and forth that there was never murders on Silk Road. When we were doing the investigation, to us, there were six murders. Um, so there, there was the way we see him, saw him at the time was Ross ordered people to be murdered. Um, you know, somebody, people stole from him and all that. It was sort of a, an evolution from, oh man, I can't deal with this. I can't do it. It's too much to the last one was like, the guy said, uh, well, he's got three roommates. Uh, it's like, oh, we'll kill them too. Was that ever proven in court? No, it's a, murder. the the murders never went forward because there was some uh, some some stuff problems in that case. So there was a separate case in Baltimore uh, that they had been working on for a lot longer. And so, you know, during the investigation, that caused a bunch of problems because now we have multiple federal agencies a case against the same thing. How do you decide not to push forward the the the, the murder investigations? So there was a deconfliction meeting that happened in D.C. Um, I didn't happen to go to that meeting, but Jared went, this is before I ever knew Jared. And, um, we have like, um, televisions where we can just sit in a room and sit, sit in on the meeting. Um, but it's all, you know, secured network and all that. So we can talk openly about, uh, secure things. Um, and we sat in on the meeting and 
people just kept saying the term sweat equity. I've got sweat equity, meaning that they had worked on the case for so long that they deserve to take them down. Um, and the, by this time, you know, no one knew about us, but we told them at the meeting that, well, we had found the server and we have a copy of it and we have the infrastructure. Um, and, and these guys had just had communications under covers. Um, they didn't really know what was going on. And this wasn't my first deconfliction meeting. We had a huge deconfliction meeting during, um, during the anonymous case. What's the deconfliction meeting? Agents within your agency or other other federal agencies have an open uh, investigation that if you expose your case or took down your case would hurt their case or the other. Oh, way. so you kind of have a, it's it's like the rival gangs meet at the table in a smoke filled room, and then, uh, less bullets at the end. But yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh boy, with the sweat equity. Yeah, so I, I mean, there's I co- careers at stake, right? Yeah. You hate that idea. Yeah. I mean, why would you, why is that a stake? Just because you've worked on it long enough, longer than I have, that means you get, you, you, you did better. Yeah. That's, that's insane to me. The, the, that's rewarding bad behavior. And so that one of the part of the sweat equity discussion was about murder. And this was, here's a chance to actually bust them given the data you have from Iceland and all that kind of stuff. So why? Well, they wanted us just to turn the data over to them to them yeah so like, that thanks they, thanks for getting us this far here it is i mean it came to the point where they sent us like they they had a picture of what they thought ross was and it was an internet meme it really was a meme it was a, it was a photo that we could look up like it, it was insane all right so there's uh different degrees of competence all across the world between different people yes okay uh does part of you regret because you push forward the the heroin and the drug trade. We never got to the murder discussion. I mean, the only regret is that the, the, the internet doesn't seem to understand. Like they, they they just kind of blow that part off. That that he literally paid people to have people murdered. It didn't result in a murder, and I thank God no one resulted in a murder. But that's where his mind was. His mind and where he wrote in his diary was that I had people killed, and here's the money. He paid it. He he paid a large amount of bitcoins. Uh, to, to, for that murder, so those did, murders. He didn't just even think about it. He actually took action, but the murders never happened. He took action by paying the money. Correct, and the, and the people came back with results. He thought they were murdered. That said, can you understand and steal me on the case for the drug trade on Silk Road? Like making, can you make the case that it's a net positive for society? So there was a time period of when we found out the infrastructure. And when we built the case against Ross, I don't remember exactly, six weeks, a month, two months, I don't know, somewhere in there. Um, but then at Ross's sentencing, there was a father that stood up and talked about his son dying. And I went back and kind of did the math, and it was between those time periods of when we knew we could shut it down, we could have pulled the plug on the server and gone. And when Ross was arrested, uh, his son died from buying drugs on Silk Road. And I still think think about that father a lot. But if we look at scale at the war on drugs, let's just even outside of Silk Road, do you think the war on drugs by the United States has caused, has alleviated more suffering or caused more suffering in the world? That might be above my pay scale. I mean, I understand the other side of the argument. I mean, people said that I don't have to go down to the corner to buy drugs. I'm not going to get shot on the corner buying drugs or something. I can just have them sent to my house. People are going to do drugs anyways. I understand that argument. Um, 
from a personal standpoint, if I made it more difficult for my children to get drugs, then I'm satisfied. So your personal philosophy is that if we legalize all drugs, including heroin and cocaine, that that would not make for a better world. I don't, no, personally, I don't believe Do legalizing all drugs would make, make for a better world. Can you imagine that it would? Do you understand that argument? Sure. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've started to, I like to see both sides of an argument. And when I can't see the other side, I, that's when I really like to dive into it. And I can see the other side. I can see the, why people would say that. Um, but I don't want to be a, my raised children in a world where, where drugs are just free for, for use. Well, and then the other side of it is with Silk Road. Did... Uh... You know, taking down Silk Road, did that increase or decrease the number of uh, dr drug trading criminals in the world? It's unclear. Online, I think it increased. I think, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things I think about a lot with Silk Road was that no one really knew. I mean, there, there was, uh, you know, thousands of users. But then after that, it was on the front page of the paper, and there was millions of people that knew about Tor and, and Onion Sites. It was an advertisement. Um, you know, I would have thought, I thought crypto was going to crash right after that. Like, I don't like, look, people now see that ba bad people are doing bad things with crypto. That'll crash. Well, I'm obviously wrong on that one. Uh, and I thought, you know, Ross was sentenced to two life sentences plus 40 years. No one's going to start up these dark markets exploded after that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, some of them started as, you know, opportunistic. I'm going to, you know, take those escrow accounts and I'm going to steal all the all the money that came in, you know, they were for that. But, you know, but there were a lot of dark markets that popped up after that. Now we we put the playbook out there. Yeah. Yeah, but and also there's a case for uh do you ever think about not taking down if you've not taken down Silk Road, you could use it because it's a market it itself is not necessarily the primary criminal organization. It's a market for criminals. So it could be used to track down criminals in the physical world. So if you don't take it down, and given that it was, you know, the central, how centralized it was, it could be used as a place to find criminals, right? As so opposed the, the to the dealers, the drug dealers, the, take it down the, the dealers. dealers. Yeah. So if you have the card, get the cartels, start get to involved, you, you go after the dealers. It would have been very difficult. Because of tour and all Because that. all the protections, anonymity. Decloaking all that would have been drastically more difficult. And a lot of people in upper management, the FBI didn't have the appetite of running something like that. That would have been the FBI running a drug market. How many, how many kids, how many fathers would have to come in and said, my kid bought while the FBI was running a site, a drug site, my kid died. So... I didn't know anybody in the FBI in management that would have the appetite to let us run what was happening on Silk Road. Um, you know, because remember at that time, we're still believing six people are dead. We're still investigating, you know, where are all these bodies? Um, you know, that's pretty much why we took down Ross when we did. I mean, we, we had to jump on it fast. What else can you say about this complicated world that has grown of the dark web? I don't understand it. I, I like it would have been a, a something for me. I, I thought I thought it was going to collapse, but 
I mean, it's just gotten bigger in what's going out there. Now, I'm really surprised in, in that it hasn't grown into other networks or people haven't developed other networks. But but you Tor's, mean like instead of Tor? Yeah, Tor's still the main one out there. I mean, there's some, there's a few others, and I'm not I'm not going to put an advertisement out for yes. them. But uh, but you know, uh, I thought that market would have grown. Yeah, my sense was when I interacted with Tor, it was that there's huge usability issues, but that's for like legal activity. Yeah, because like if you care about privacy, it's just not as good of a browser like uh it's to 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 look at stuff no it's way too slow it's way it's too way slow. too slow but i mean you can't even like i know some people would use it to like view movies like netflix you can only view certain movies in certain countries you can use it for that but it's it's too slow even for that so were you ever able to hold in your mind the landscape of the dark web like what what's going on out there it's just, to me as a human being it's just difficult to understand the digital world, like these anonymous usernames, like doing anonymous activity. It's just, it's hard to, um, what am I trying to say? It's hard to visualize it in the way I can visualize, like I've been reading a lot about Hitler. I can visualize meetings between people, military strategy, uh, deciding on uh, certain evil atrocities, all that kind of stuff. I can visualize the people, there's agreements, hands, handshakes stuff signed groups built like in the digital space like with bots with anonymity anyone human can be multiple people uh it's just yeah it's all lies it's all lies like yeah it feels like i can't trust anything no you can't you honestly can't and like you can talk to two different people and it's the same person like like there's so many different you know hector had so many different identities online the you know uh of things that the you know the, the lies to each other i mean he lied to people inside his group uh just to use another name to spy on make sure what they you know we're talking shit behind his back or weren't doing anything um it's all lies and, and people that can keep all those lies straight it's unbelievable to me ross albrecht represents the very early days of that that's why the the competence wasn't there just imagine how good the people are now the kids that grow up Oh, they've learned from his his mistakes. Just the extreme competence. You just see how good people are at video games, like the level of uh, play in terms of video games. Like I, I used to think I sucked. And now <laughs> I'm not even like, I'm not even in, in the like consideration of calling myself shitty at video games. I'm not even, I'm like non-existent. I'm like... Uh, the mold. Yeah, I stopped playing because it's so embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Yeah, it's like wrestling with your kid and he finally beats you. He's like, well, fuck that. I'm not wrestling with my kid any, ever again. And in some sense, hacking uh, at its best and its worst is a kind of game. And you can get exceptionally good at that kind of game. And you get the accolations of, of it. I mean, there, there, there's, you know, there's power that comes along. If you have success, look at the kid that, that was hacking into Uber and Rockstar Games. He put it out there that he was doing it. I mean, he used the name, um, whatever, hacked into Uber was his screen name. Mm -hmm. He was very proud of it. I mean, one building evidence against himself. Uh, but, you know, they, they, he wanted that slap on the back. Like, look at what a great hacker you are. Yeah. What do you think is in the mind of that? Guy, what do you think is in the mind of of Russ? Do you think they see themselves as good people? Uh, do they do do you think they acknowledge the bad they're doing out into the world? So, so that Uber hacker, I think that's just youth, I mean, not realizing what consequences are. I mean, based on his actions, Ross was a little bit older. Um, I think I Ross truly is a libertarian. He was truly had his beliefs that that he could provide 
the gateway for other people to live that libertarian lifestyle and put in their body what they want. Uh, I, I don't think that was a, a front or a lie. What, what's the difference between uh, DPR and Ross? You said like, I have never met Ross until, I have only had those two, uh, two, two days of worth of interaction. Yeah. It's just, it's just interesting given how long you've chased him and then having met him, what was the difference to you as a human being? He he was a human being. He was he was you know he was an actual person. He was nervous when I when we arrested him. Um, so one of the things that that I, I learned through my law enforcement career is if I'm going to be the case agent, I'm going to be the one in charge of you know dealing with this person. I'm not putting handcuffs on him. Somebody else is going to do that. Like I'm going to be there to help him. Uh, you know, I'm your conduit to help. And so, you know, right after someone's arrested, you, you obviously you've had them down for weapons to make sure for everybody's safety. But then I just put my hand on their chest. Just feel their heart, feel their breathing. You're gonna. It's. it's I'm sure it's the scariest day, yeah. but then to have that human contact kind of settles people down, and you kind of let, let's start thinking about this. I'm gonna tell you. You know, I'm gonna be open and honest with you. You know, there's a lot of cops out there and federal agents, cops that just go to the hard ass tactic. You don't get very far with that. You don't get very far being a mean asshole to somebody. You know. Be compassionate, be human, uh, and it's going to go a lot further. So given everything he's done, you're still able to have a compassion for him. Yeah. We took him to the jail, and we, we so he, it was after hours, so he didn't get to see a judge that day. So you stick, we stuck him in the San Francisco jail. Um, I hadn't slept for about four days because I was dealing with the people in Iceland, bosses in D.C., bosses in New York. So I, And I was in San Francisco, so time frame like like the iceland people were calling me when i was supposed to be sleeping it was insane but i still went out that night while ross sat in jail and bought him breakfast i said what do you want for breakfast i'll have a nice breakfast for you because we picked him up in the morning and took him over to the fbi to do the the fbi booking the fingerprints and all that and and i got him breakfast i mean and you don't get paid back for that sort of thing i'm not looking but out of my did, own did he make special requests for breakfast yeah he asked for certain things what can you mention is that top uh, secret fbi not, not, not top secret i i, I think he wanted some <laughs> granola bars like and and, and you know yeah. But, but I mean, he already had lawyered up, so we, you know, which is his right. He can do that. So I, I knew we weren't going to work together, you know, like I did with Hector. Um, but I mean, this is so most guy's of the last day. Most of the conversations have to be done with lawyers. From that point on, I can't question him yeah. when he asks for a lawyer. Um, or if I did, it, it couldn't be used against him. Yeah. Um, so we just had conversations where I talked to him. You know, he could, you know, could could say things to me, but then I would remind him that he asked for a lawyer and he'd have to waive that and all that. But we didn't talk about his case so much. We just talked about like human beings. Did he, um, with his eyes, with his words, um, reveal any kind of regret or did you see a human being changing, understanding something about themselves in the process of being caught? No, I don't. I don't think that. I mean, he did offer me twenty million dollars to let him go when we oh, were driving. God. When we were driving to the the jail. Oh no! Uh, and I asked him what I was going. We were going to do with the agent that sat in the front seat. The money really broke him, huh? I think so. I think he kind of got caught up in how much money it was, and and how you know when crypto started, it was pennies, and by the time he got arrested, it was one hundred twenty bucks, and the other, you know, one hundred seventy seven thousand bitcoins. Even today, you know, that's a lot of Bitcoins. <laughs> so you really could have been, if you continued to be one of the richest people in the world. I, I possibly could have been if I took that, that 20 million <laughs> then. I could have been living, we could have this conversation in Venezuela. Uh, <laughs> in, in a castle, in a palace. <laughs> yeah, until it runs out and then, uh, and then the government storms the castle. <laughs> yeah. 
Have you talked to Russ since? No, no. I, I would. I'd be open to it. I don't think he probably wants to hear from me. And do you know where and in which prison he is? I think he's somewhere out in Arizona. I know he was in the one next to Supermax for a little while, like the the high security one that's like shares the fence with Supermax. But I don't think he's there anymore. I think he's out in Arizona. I I haven't seen in a while. I wonder if you can do interviews in prison. That'd be nice. Some some people are allowed to. So I don't I don't I've not seen an interview with him. I know people have wanted to interview him about books and that sort of thing. Right, because the story really blew up. Did it surprise you how much the story? And many elements of it blew up. Movies. It, it did surprise books. me. Like it, my wife's uncle, who I didn't. I've been married to my wife for twenty two years now. I don't think he knew my name, and he, he was excited about that. He reached out when when Silk Road came out. So he he, you know, that was surprising to see. Did you think the movie was uh, on the on the topic was good? I didn't have anything to do with that movie. I've watched it once. It was kind of cool that Jimmy Simpson, you know, was my name in the movie. But outside of that, I thought it, it, it sort of missed the mark on some things. When Hollywood, I don't think they understand what's interesting about these kinds of stories. And there's a lot of things that are interesting and they missed all of them. So for example, I recently talked to John Carmack, all right. who's a world-class developer and so on. So Hollywood would think that the interesting thing about John Carmack is some kind of like a shitty, like a parody of a hacker or something like that. They would show like really uh, crappy, like uh, emulation of some kind of Linux terminal thing. The reality is like the technical details for five hours with him, for 10 hours with him is what people actually want to see. Even people that don't program, they want to see a brilliant mind the the details that they're not that even if they don't understand all the details they want to have an inkling of the genius there that's just one way i'm saying like that that you want to reveal the 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 genius the complexity of that world in interesting ways and to make a hollywood almost parody caricature of it it just destroys the spirit of the thing so one um the operation fbi is fascinating just tracking down these people on the cybersecurity front is fascinating. The other is just how you run tour, how you run this kind of organization, the trust issues of the different criminal entities involved, the anonymity, uh, the uh, the low hanging fruit, the being shitty at certain parts uh, in, on the technical front. All of those are fascinating things, and uh, you know that's that's what a movie should reveal. It should probably be a series, honestly, a Netflix series than a movie. Yeah, and they wanted an FX show or something like that because they're yeah. kind of gritty, you know. Yeah, yeah, gritty. Yeah. Exactly gritty. I mean, uh, shows like Chernobyl from HBO made me realize, okay, you can do a good job of a difficult story, and and like reveal the human side, but also reveal the technical side, and have some deep, profound understanding on that case on the bureaucracy of a of a of a Soviet regime. In this case, you could reveal the bureaucracy, the chaos of a criminal organization, of a law enforcement organization. I mean, there's so much to like explore. It's fascinating. Yeah, I, don't know. Yeah, I like Chernobyl. I, I, when I rewatch it, I can't watch episode three though. The 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 animal scent, the episode. They go around shooting all the dogs and all that. Yeah. I got to skip that part. You're a big softy, aren't you? I, I really am. Yeah. I'm sure I'll probably cry at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Listen, <laughs> don't get me talking about that episode you made about your grandmother. Oh, my God. That was rough. Just to linger on this ethical versus legal question, what do you think about people like Aaron Schwartz? I don't know if you're familiar with him, but uh, he was somebody uh, who broke the law in the name of an ethical ideal. He 
uh, downloaded and released um, academic publications that were behind uh, a paywall. And uh, he was uh, arrested for that and then committed suicide. And a lot of people see him, uh, certainly in the MIT community, but uh, throughout the world as a hero. Because you look at the way knowledge, scientific knowledge is being put behind paywalls, it does seem somehow unethical. And he basically broke the law to do the ethical thing. Now you could challenge it, maybe it is unethical, but the, you know there's a gray area and to me at least, it is ethical. To me at least, he is a hero because I'm familiar with the paywall created by uh, the institutions that hold these publications. They're adding very little value. So it is basically holding hostage the work of millions of brilliant scientists um, for for some kind of, honestly, a, a crappy capitalist institution. Like they're not actually making that much money. It doesn't make any sense to me. It should, to me, it should all be open uh, public access. Uh, there's no reason it shouldn't be, all publications should be. So he stood for that ideal and, um, and was punished harshly for it. That's the other criticism, it's too harshly. And of course, uh, deeply unfortunately, that also led to a suicide because he was also tormented on many levels. I mean, do you, are you familiar with him? What do you think about that line between what is legal and what is ethical? So it's tough. It's a tough case. I mean, the the, the outcome was tragic, obviously. Um, he, 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 unfortunately, when you're in law enforcement, you have to, your job is to enforce the laws. I mean, it's not if, if you're told that you have to do a certain case, you know, and there is a violation of, at the time, you know, 18 USC 10, 1030, uh, computer hacking, um, you have to press forward with that. I mean, the, the, you have to charge, the, you, you bring the case to the United States office and whether they're going to press charges or not, you know, you can't, you can't really pick and choose what you, press and don't press for it. I, I never felt that, at least that flexibility, not in the FBI. I mean, maybe if you, when you're a street cop and you pull somebody over, you can let them go with a warning. So in the FBI, you're sitting in a room, but you're also, you're also a human being. You have sure. compassion. Yeah. You arrested Ross, and the hand on the chest. I mean, that's that's a human thing. Sure. So there's a... But I'm, I can't be the jury for whether it was a good hack or a bad hack. It's all someone, a victim has come forward and said, we're the victim of this. And, and I agree with you because, again, I the basis of the internet was to share academic thought. Yeah. I mean, that's where the internet was born. But it's not It's not up to you. So the, the role of the FBI is to enforce the law. Correct. And, and you know, there's a, there's a limited number of tools on our, on our Batman belt that we can use. Um, you know, not to get into all the aspects of the Trump case and, and Mar-a-Lago and the documents there. I mean, the, the FBI only has so many tools they can use and, and a search warrant is the only way they could get in there. I mean, that's it. It's a, you know, there's no other legal document or legal way to, to enter and, and get those documents. What do you think about the, the FBI and Mar-a-Lago and the FBI taking the documents for Donald Trump? You know, it's a tough spot. I, it's a really tough spot. The, the FBI has gotten a lot of black eyes, um, you know, recently. Um, and, and I don't know if it's the same FBI that I, I remember when I was there. 
do you think they deserve it in part? Was it done clumsily? The 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 their rating of uh, the former president's residence. Yeah, um, it's tough. It's tough, you know, because again, they're only limited to what they're allowed, what they're legally allowed to to do, and, and a search warrant is the only legal way of doing it. Um, I have my personal and political views on certain things, um, you know, and, and I think it might, you know, it might be surprising to some where those political points stand. But uh, yeah. you, you told me offline that you're a hardcore communist. That was very strange, <laughs> very surprising to me. Well, that's only you try to bring me into the Communist Party. So. <laughs> exactly. I was trying to recruit you, giving you all kinds of flyers. Um, <laughs> okay. But um, you said like, you know, people in the FBI are just following the law, but there's a chain of command and so on. Uh, what do you think about the conspiracy theories that people, some small number of people inside the FBI conspired to undermine the presidency of Donald Trump? If you would have asked me when I was inside and before all this happened, I would say it could never happen. I, I don't believe in conspiracies. You know, there's too many people involved. Somebody's going to come out with some sort of information. But I mean, from the more of the stuff that comes out, it's surprising that, you know, agents are being fired because of certain actions they're taking inside um, and being dismissed because of politically motivated actions. So do you think it's explicit or just pressure? Just, do you think there could exist just pressure at the higher ups uh, that, that has a political leaning and you kind of maybe don't explicitly order any kind of thing, but just kind of pressure people to lean one way or the other and, and then create a culture that leans one way or the other based on political leanings? You would really, really hope not. But I mean, that seems to be the narrative that's being written. But when you were operating, you didn't feel that pressure. Man, I was such at a low level. You know, I, I had no aspirations of being a boss. I wanted to be a case agent my entire life. So you love the puzzle of it, I, the, the the chase. I love solving things. Yeah, yeah. To be management and manage people and all that, and like, no desire whatsoever. What do you think about Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan's podcast saying that the FBI warned Facebook about potential foreign interference, uh, and then Facebook? inferred from that that they're talking about Hunter Biden laptop story and thereby censored it. What do you think about that whole story? Again, you asked me when I was in the FBI, I wouldn't believed it from being on the inside. I wouldn't believe these things, but there's a certain narrative being written that is surprising to me that the FBI is involved in these stories. So, but the interesting thing there is the FBI is saying that they didn't really make that implication. They're saying that there's interference activity happening. Yeah. Just watch out. I and mean, it's a weird relationship between the FBI and Facebook. You could see from the best possible interpretation that the FBI just wants Facebook to be aware because it is a powerful platform, a platform for viral spread of misinformation. So mm -hmm. in the best possible interpretation of it, it makes sense for FBI to send some information saying like we were seeing some shady activity. Absolutely. But it seems like all of that somehow escalated to a political interpretation. I mean, yeah, it sounded like there was a wink, wink with it. Um, right. the, the, I, I don't know if Mark uh, meant for that to be that way. You know, like, again, are we being social engineered or, or was that a true, uh, you know, expression that, that Mark had? And I wonder if the wink, wink is direct or it's just culture. You know, maybe certain people responsible on the Facebook side lean, have a certain political lean, and then certain people on the FBI side have a political lean, 
when they're interacting together. And it's like literally has nothing to do with a uh, giant conspiracy theory, but just with a culture that has a particular uh, political lean during a uh, a particular time in history. And so like uh, maybe it could be Hunter Biden laptop one time and then it could be uh, whoever, uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s uh, laptop uh, another time. It's a tough job. I mean, if you're the liaison, if you're the FBI's liaison to, to Facebook, uh, you know, there, there are certain people that I'm sure they were offered a position at some point. It seems we, you know, there's FBI agents that go, I know, I know a couple that's gone to Facebook. Um, there's a, there's a really good agent that now leads up their child exploitation stuff. Um, another squad mate runs their internal investigations, uh, both great investigators. So, you know, there, there's good money, especially when you're an FBI agent that's capped out at a, you know, a 1310 or whatever, whatever pay scale you're capped out at. Um, it's, it's alluring to, to, to be, you know, maybe want to please them and, uh, and, and be asked to, to join them. Yeah. And over time that corrupts, I think there has to be an introspection in tech companies about the culture that, that they develop, about the um, the political ideology, the bubble. It's interesting to see that bubble. Like I, I've uh, asked myself a lot of questions. I've uh, interviewed the Pfizer CEO, um, what seems now a long time ago. <laughs> and I've gotten a lot of criticism uh, the positive comments, but also criticism from that conversation. And I did a lot of soul searching about the kind of bubbles we have in this world. And it makes me wonder, pharmaceutical companies, they all believe they're doing good. Um, and I wonder, because the, the ideal they have is to create drugs that help people and do so at scale. And it's hard to know at which point that can be corrupted. And it's hard to know when it was corrupted and if it was corrupted and where, which which drugs and which companies and so on. And I don't know. I don't know that complicated. It seems like inside a bubble, you can convince yourself of anything is good. Uh, people inside the, the Third Reich re regime were able to convince themselves, I'm sure many just... Um, Bloodlands is another book I've been re recently reading about it. And the ability of humans to convince they're doing good when they're clearly murdering and torturing people in front of their eyes is fascinating. They're able to convince themselves they're doing good. It's crazy. Like there's not even an inkling of doubt. Um, yeah, it, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of that. So um, it, it has taught me to be a little bit more careful. When I enter into different bubbles, to um, be skeptical about what's taken as an assumption of truth. Like you always have to uh, be skeptical about like what's assumed as true, is it possible it's not true? Um, you know, if you're doing, if you're talking about the America, uh, it's assumed that, uh, you know, in certain places that surveillance is good. Well, let's let's question that, uh, that's, that assumption, um, yeah. And I also, it inspired me to question my own assumptions that I, I hold this true constantly, uh, constantly. It's yeah. tough, it's tough. But you don't grow. I mean, do you wanna be just static and not grow? You have to question yourself on, on some of these things if you wanna grow as a person. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the tough things actually of being a public personality when you speak publicly is you get attacked all along the way as you're growing. 
Sure. And, and um, uh, in part, a big softy as well, if I may say. And those hurt, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. Do you pay attention to it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very hard. Like I have two choices. One, you can uh, shut yourself off from the world and ignore it. I've, I never found that compelling, this kind of idea of like haters gonna hate. Yeah. Like uh, this idea that uh, anyone with a big platform or anyone's ever done anything was always gotten hate. Yeah, okay, maybe. But like, I still wanna be vulnerable, wear my heart on my sleeve, really show myself, like open myself to the world, really listen to people. And that means every once in a while, somebody will say something that touches me in a way that's like, what if they're right? Do you let that hate influence you? I mean, can you be bullied into a set different opinion than you think you really are no. just because of that hate? No, no, I believe not, but it hurts yeah. in a way that's hard to explain. Like, um, yeah, it just, it, it gets to like, uh, it shakes your faith in humanity actually is, is, is probably why it hurts. Like um, people that, um, call me a Putin apologist or a Zelensky apologist, which I'm currently getting almost an equal amount of, but it hurts. It, it hurts because I, um, it hurts because it, it like, it, it damages slightly my faith in humanity to be able to see um, the love that connects us and then to see that I'm trying to find that. And that's I'm doing my best in the in the limited capabilities I have to find that, and so to call me something uh, like a bad actor, essentially from whatever perspective, it just makes me realize well, um, people don't have empathy and compassion for each other, and it makes me question that for a brief moment, and that that's like a crack, and it it hurts. How many people do this to your face? Uh, very few. Yeah, it's all, it's online e muscles, man. They're just flexing. I, their I e have to be honest that uh, it's it happens. Yeah, because I've hung around with uh, with Rogan enough. When your platform grows, th there's people that will come up to Joe and say stuff to his face that they forget. They they still um, they forget he's an actual real human being. Yeah, they'll they'll make accusations about him. So does that cause him to wall himself off more? No, he's uh, he's pretty gangster on that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it still hurts if you're if you're human. If you really um, feel others, I think that's also the difference with 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 Joe and me. He has a um, he has a family that he deeply loves, and that's an escape from the world for him. Mm. Um, there's a loneliness in me that's I'm always longing to connect with people and with like regular people. And like just to 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 learn their stories and so on, and so if you open yourself up that way, the things they tell you can really hurt in every way. Like uh, just me going to Ukraine, just seeing so much loss yeah. and death. Some of it is like, uh, is I mean, unforgettably haunting. Not in some kind of political way, activist way, or uh, who's right, who's wrong way, but just like, man like so much pain you see it and it just stays with you when you it's, see a human being bad to another human you can't get rid of that in your head you can't yeah. imagine that you that that we can treat each other like that that's the hard part i think i mean it's it, it that for me it is 
when when I saw parents like when I did the child exploitation stuff when they rented their children out they literally rented infant children out to others for sexual gratification like I don't know how a human being could do that to another human being and that that sounds like the kind of thing you're going through I mean I went through a huge funk when I did those cases afterwards I should have talked to somebody but in the FBI you you, you have to keep that machismo up or they're going to take your gun away from you well I think that's examples of evil um, that that's like the worst of human nature. But I just, like, just because I have- War is, is just as bad. I mean- Somehow war, it's somehow understandable given all the the very intense propaganda that's happening. So it's, you can understand um, that there is love in the heart of the soldiers on each side, given the information they're given. There's a lot of people on the Russian side believe they're saving these Ukrainian cities from Nazi occupation. Uh, now, there is stories, uh, there is a lot of evidence of people for fun murdering civilians. Mm. Now that that is closer to the things you've experienced well, uh, of like evil, yeah. uh, of evil embodied and i haven't interacted with, with that directly with people who for fun murdered civilians but you know it's there in the world i mean yes. you're not naive to it yes but if you experience that directly mm -hmm. if somebody shot somebody for fun in front of me that would probably break me yeah like seeing it yourself knowing that it exists is different than seeing it yourself now i've interacted with the victims of that and they tell me stories and you see their homes destroyed, destroyed for no good military reason. It's civilians with civilian homes being destroyed. That really lingers with you. But um, yeah, the people that are capable of that. But that goes with the propaganda. I mean, if you were to build a story, you have to, you know, you have to have on the other side, you know, the homes are gonna be destroyed. The, the non-military targets are gonna be destroyed. To put it in perspective, I'm not sure a lot of people understand the deep human side or even the military strategy side of this war. There's a lot of experts outside of the situation that are commenting on it with certainty. Mm. And that kind of hurts me because I feel like there's a lot of uncertainty. There's so much propaganda, it's very difficult to know what is true. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so my whole hope was to travel to Ukraine, to travel to Russia, to talk to soldiers, to talk to leaders, to talk to real people that have lost homes, that have lost family members, that uh, who this war has divided, who this war changed completely how they see the world, uh, whether they have love or hate in their heart to understand their stories. Um, I've learned a lot on the human side of things by having talked to a lot of people there, uh, but it has been on the Ukrainian side for me currently. Traveling to the Russian side is more difficult let me ask you about your now friend. Can we go as far as to say as friend uh, in Asabu and Hector Masagur? What's the uh, what's what's the story? What's your long story with him? Can you tell me about what is Lalsek? Who is Sabu? And who's anonymous? What is anonymous? Where's the right place to start that story? Probably anonymous. Anonymous is a was a it still is I guess a decentralized organization. Uh, they call themselves headless, but once you look into them a little ways, they're, they're not really headless. Um, the 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 power struggle comes with 
whoever has a hacking ability. Um, that might be you're a good hacker or you have a, a giant botnet used for DDoS. Um, so, so you're going to wield more power if you can control where it goes. Anonymous started doing their like hacktivism stuff in 2010 or so. Um, the word hack was in the media all the time then. Um, and then right around then, there was a federal contractor named H.B. Gary Federal. The Their CEO is Aaron Barr. And Aaron Barr said he was going to come out and de-anonymize Anonymous. He's going to come out and talk at Black Hat or DEF CON or one of those and say, you know, who they are. He figured it out or so he figured it out by based on, uh, you know, when people were online, when people were in IRC, when tweets came out, it was, it, there was no scientific proof behind it or anything. Uh, so he's just going to falsely name people that were, that were in anonymous. So anonymous went on the attack. They went and hacked in HB, HB Gary federal and they turned his life upside down. They took over his Twitter account and all that stuff, um, pretty quickly. So I have very mixed feelings about all of this. Okay. I get, like, part of me admires the positive side of the hacktivism. Okay. Is there no room for admiration there of the fuck you to the man? Not at the time. Again, it was a violation. 18 USC 1030. So it was my job. It's what I, you know. So at the time, no. In retrospect, sure. Okay. Yeah. But the, uh, what, what was the philosophy of the hacktivism? Was it, what, what, the philosophically, were they at least expressing it for the good of humanity or no? They outwardly said that they were going to go after people that they thought were corrupt. So they were judge and jury on corruption. They were going to go after it. Right. Once you get on, inside and realize what they were doing, they were going after people that they had an opportunity to go after. Um, so maybe someone had a zero day and then they searched for servers running that zero day. And then from there, let's find a target. I mean, one time they went after a toilet paper company. I still don't understand what that toilet paper company did, but it was an opportunity to make a splash. Is there some, some of it for the joke, for the lulls? It developed into that. So I, I think the hacktivism and the anonymous stuff wasn't so much for the lulls. Um, but from that HP Gary federal hack, then there were six guys that worked well together and they formed a crew, a hacking crew, and they kind of split off into their own private channels. And that was LulSec or, or laughing at your security was their motto. So that's L U L Z S E C lulz sec. Of course it is. <laughs> lulz sec. And, uh, who founded that organization? So, Kayla and Sabu were the hackers of the group. And so they really did all the work on HB Gary. So they're, these are code names. Yeah. They're online names. They're, they're, they're Nicks. Um, and so, you know, they, they, and they, that's all they knew each other as, you know, they talked as, as those names. Um, and they worked well together. And so they, they formed a hacking crew. And that's when they started the, the, at first they didn't name it this, but it was the 50 days of lulls where they would just release major major breaches um and it stirred up the media i mean it put hacking in on, on in the media every day uh they had 400 or 500,000 twitter followers um you know and it was kind of interesting um but then they started swinging at the beehive and they 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 took out some uh, fbi affiliated sites uh and then they started uh, fuck fbi fridays uh, where every every Friday they would release something, and we waited it for with bated breath. I mean, they had us hook, line, and sinker pissed. Uh, we were waiting to see what was going to be dropped every Friday. It was it's a little embarrassing looking back on it now. And this is in the early 2010s. Yeah, 
This was 2010, 2011, around there. You can actually linger on um, Anonymous. What Do you still understand what the heck is Anonymous? It's just a place where you hang out. I mean, it's just, it started on 4chan, went to 8chan, and it's really just anyone. You could be an Anonymous right now if you wanted to. Just you're in there hanging out in the channel. Now, you're probably not going to get much cred until you work your way up and prove who you are or someone vouches for you. Uh, but anybody can be an Anonymous. Anybody can leave Anonymous. What's the leadership of Anonymous? Do you have a sense that there is a leadership? There's a power play. Now, there's not someone that, you know, that says this is what we're doing and all we're, we're doing. I love the the philosophical and the technical aspect of all of this. But I think there is a slippery slope to where for the laws, you can actually really hurt people. That's, yeah. the, that's the terrifying thing. When you attach, I'm actually really terrified of the power of the lull. Yeah. It's, it, the fun thing somehow becomes a slippery slope. I well, haven't that. quite understood the dynamics of that, but even in myself, if you just, have fun with the thing, you lose track of the ethical grounding of the thing. And so like, it feels like hacking for fun can just turn it, like literally lead to nuclear war. Like literally destabilize. Yeah, like yada, 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 nuclear war. I could see it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I've been more careful with the lull. Uh, uh, I, I'm very, yeah, I've been more careful about that. And I wonder about it because in internet speak, somehow ethics can be put aside uh, through the slippery slope of language. I don't know. Everything becomes a joke. If everything is a joke, then everything is allowed, and everything is allowed, then you don't have a sense of what is right and wrong. You lose sense of what is right and wrong. You still have victims. I mean, you're laughing at someone. Someone's the butt of this joke. You know, whether it's major corporations or the individuals, I mean, some of the stuff they did was just, you know, releasing people's PII and their personal identifying information and stuff like that. I mean, is it a big deal? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, if you could choose to not have your information put out there, probably wouldn't. Do you have a sense of what Anonymous is today? Is Has it ever been one stable organization or is it a collection of hackers that kind of emerge for particular tasks, for particular uh, like hacktivism tasks and that kind of stuff? It's a collection of people that has some hackers in it. There's not a lot of big hackers in it. I mean, there's some that will come bounce in and bounce out. Even back then, there was probably just as many reporters in it, people of the media in it, with uh, than, than hackers at the time, just trying to get the inside scoop on things. You know, some giving the inside scoop. You know, we arrested a, guy, a reporter that gave over the uh, username and password to his uh, newspaper, and uh, you know, just so he could break the story. He trusted him. Speaking of trust, reporters, boy, there's good ones. There's good ones. There are. There are. But boy, do I have a complicated relationship with them. How many stories about you are completely true? You can just make stuff up on the internet. And one of the things that, I mean, there's so many fascinating psychological, sociological elements of the internet uh, to me. One of them is that you can say that uh, Lex is a lizard, right? And if it's not funny, uh, so lizard is kind of funny, what should we say? <laughs> um, Lex has admitted to being uh, an, an agent of the FBI. Okay, you can just say that, right? All right. And then the response that the internet would be like, oh, is that true? I didn't realize that. They won't go like, provide evidence, please. 
right? They'll just say like, "Oh, that's weird." I didn't. I I kind of thought he might be kind of weird, <laughs> and then like, it piles on. It's like, "Hey, hey, hey, guys!" Like, here's a random dude on the internet just said a random thing. You can't just like pile up as. Yeah. And then yeah, Johnny sixty nine sixty nine is now a source that says. And then like, the thing is, I'm I'm a I'm a tiny guy, but when it grows, uh, if you're like have a big platform. I feel like newspapers will pick that up, and then they'll like start to build on a story, and you never know where that story really started. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, to me, actually, honestly, it's kind of cool that there, there's a viral nature of the internet that can just fabricate truth completely. I think we have to accept that new reality and try to deal with it somehow. You can't just like complain that Johnny Sixty Nine can start a random thing, but I, I think in the best possible world, it is the role of the journalist to be the adult in the room and put a stop to it versus look for the sexiest story so that there could be clickbait that can generate money. Journalism should be about sort of slowing things down, thinking deeply through what is true and not and showing that to the world. I think there's a lot of hunger for that. And I think that would actually get the most clicks in the end. I mean, it's that same pressure I think we're talking about with the FBI and with the the tech companies about controllers. I mean, the editors have to please and get those clicks. I mean, they're measured by those clicks. So, you know, the, I'm sure the journalists, the true journalists, the good ones out there want that, but they want to stay employed too. Can I actually ask you, uh, really, as another tangent, the uh, Jared and others, uh, they're doing undercover. Yep. In terms of the tools you have for catching cybersecurity criminals, how much of it is undercover? Undercover is a high bar to jump over. You have to do a lot to start an undercover in the FBI. There's a lot of thresholds. Um, so it's not your first investigative tool step. You have to identify a problem and then show that the lower steps can't get you there. Um, but I mean, I think we we had an undercover going on in the squad about all times. When one was being shut down or taken down, we were spinning up another one. Um, so it's a good tool to have, um, you know, and utilize. Um, they're a lot of work. I don't think if you run one, you'll never run another one in your life. Oh, so it's like psychologically, is it, there's a, is a lot of work just technically, but also psychologically, like you have to really... Uh, it's 24-7, you're inside that world. Like you have to know what's going on and what's happening. You, you know, you're taking on, you have to remember who you are when you're, because you're, you're a criminal online. You have to go to a special school for it too. Was that ever something compelling to you? I went through the school, life? but I'm a pretty open and honest guy. And so it's tough for me to, to build that wall of lies. Um, it's maybe I'm just not smart enough to keep all the lies straight. Yeah. But a guy who's good at building up a wall of lies would say that exact same. Exactly. Thing. Yeah, it's so <laughs> annoying the way truth works in this world. It's like, uh, people have told me like, because I'm trying to be honest and transparent, that's exactly what an agent would do. Right. Um, but I feel like an agent would not wear a suit and tie. I wore a suit and tie Two every day. I was a suit and tie guy. You were? Yeah, every day. I remember one time I wore shorts in and the SAC came in. And this was when I was I was a rock star at the time in the bureau. And I, I had shorts in. And uh, um, I said, sorry, ma'am, I apologize for my attire. And she goes, you could wear bike shorts in here. I wouldn't care. I was like, oh, shit. That sounds nice. <laughs> I never wore the bike shorts, but. Yeah. <laughs> but see, I don't I see a suit and tie as constraining. I think it's it's liberating in sorts. It's like uh shows that you're taking the moment seriously. Well, not just that, seriously. people wanted it. I mean, people expected when you knock, you, 
you are dressed like the, a perfect FBI agent. When someone knocks on their door, that's what they want to see. They want to see what Hollywood built up is what an FBI agent is. You show up sure. like my friend Ilwan. He was dressed always in T-shirts and shorts. People aren't going to take him serious. They're not going to give him what they want. I wonder how many police that can just show up and like say I'm from the FBI and start interrogating them. Like at a bar. Probably. Like oh, been- definitely. If they've had a few drinks, you can definitely. <laughs> well, but people are going to recognize you. That's the only problem. That's another thing. You start taking out a big, big cases. You can't work cases anymore in the FBI. That's true. Your face gets out there. And your name too. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, let me ask you about that before we return to our friend Sabu. Okay. Um, you've you've tracked and worked on some of the most dangerous people in this world. Um, have you ever feared for your life? So I had to make a really, really shitty phone call one time. Um, I was sitting in the bureau, and this was right after Silk Road, um, and Jared called me. He was back in Chicago. And he called me and said, hey, your your name and your kid's name are on a website for an assassination. They're, they're paying to have you guys killed. Now, th- these things happen on the black market. They come up, you know, and, and it, what, you know, people debate whether they're real or not. But we have to take it serious. Someone's paying to have me killed. My, so I had to call my wife, and we have a word. Um, and that if I said this word, and we only said it one time to each other, if I said this word, this is serious. Drop what you're doing and get to the kids. Um, and so I had to drop the word to her. Um, and I could feel the breath come out of her because her she thought her kids were in danger. And when they then at the time they were. Um I wasn't in a state of mind to drive myself. So uh, uh, an agent on the squad, uh, a girl named Evelina, she drove me, lights and sirens all the way to my kids' school. Um and we had locked, I called the school. We were in a lockdown. Um, nobody should get in or out, uh, especially someone with a gun. Um, the first thing they did was let me in the building with a gun. So I was a little disappointed with that. Um, my kids were, I think, kindergarten and fifth grade or somewhere around there. Maybe they're closer, second, I'm not sure where. Um, but all hell broke loose. Um, and we had to, from there, go move into a safe house. Um, I live in New York City. Uh, NYPD surrounded my house. The FBI put cameras outside my house. You couldn't drive in my neighborhood without like uh, your license plate being read. Uh, hey, why is this person here? Why is that person there? I got to watch my house on an iPad while I sat at my desk. Um, but, you know, again, I put my family through that and it scared the shit out of them. Um, and that that's, to be honest, I think that's sort of uh, my mother-in-law's words were, I thought you did cybercrime. <laughs> <laughs> and because during Silk Road, I didn't tell my family what I was working on. I, mean, I don't talk about this. So why, like, I want to escape that. I don't want to be there, you know? I remember that, like, so when I was in the FBI, like, driving in i used to go in at 4 30 every morning um because i like to go to the gym before i hit go to the desk so i'd be at the desk at seven so in the gym at, at five a uh, couple hours and then then go the the best time i had was that drive in in the morning where i could just be myself i listened to a, a sports podcast out of dc um and i i, I we talked about sports and you know the nationals and whatever it was the capitals like, you know it was great to not think about silk road for 10 minutes so but that was my best time but but yeah again so yeah i, I i've had that move into the safe house i left my mp5 at home that's the the bureau's uh, machine gun um showed my wife to just Pull, pull and spray. <laughs> so, uh, but how how often did you live or work and live with fear in your heart? It was only that time. I mean, in my for actual physical security, 
Um, then, I mean, after the anonymous stuff, I, you know, I, I really tightened down to my cybersecurity. Um, you know, I don't have social media. I don't have pictures of me and my kids online. I don't really, if I go to a wedding or something, I say, I oh, don't take my picture with my, with my kids, you know, if you're going to post it someplace or something like that. Um, so that sort of security I have. Um, but, you know, just like everybody, you start to relax a little bit and security breaks down because it's not convenient. But it's also part of your job. So you're you're much better at, um, I mean, your job now and your job before. So you're probably much better at taking care of the low-hanging fruit, at least. I understand the threat. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand, is understanding what the threat against them is. So so I'm aware of that and what, what possibly. And I think about it, you know. I, I think about things. I do remember, so you you tripped a, a memory in my, my mind. Um I remember a lot of times, and I had a gun on my hip, I, I still carry a gun to this day, opening my front door and being concerned what was on the other side, Leave, walking out of the house, because yeah. I couldn't see it. I remember those four o'clock heading to the car, I, I, I was literally scared. Yeah. I mean, having seen some of the things you've seen, it makes you perhaps question how much evil there's out there in the world. How many dangerous people are there out there? Crazy people, even. There's a lot of crazy. There's a lot of evil. Uh, most people, I think, get into like cybercrime or oppor just opportunistic. Not necessarily evil. They don't really know. Maybe think about the victim. They just do as it's a crime of opportunity. You know, I, I don't label that as evil. And one of the things about America that I'm also very happy about is that rule of law despite everything we talk about, there is, it's tough to be a criminal in the United States. So like, if you walk outside your house, you're much safer than you, than you are in most other places in the world. You're safer and and the system's tougher. Uh, I mean, uh, Lulsec, six guys, one guy in the United States, five guys other places. Um, Hector was facing 125 years. Those guys got slaps on the wrist and went back to college. You know, different laws, different places. So who's Hector? Tell me the story of Hector. So this law sec organization was started. So Hector was before that in uh he was he was in part anonymous. He was all he was doing all kinds of hacking stuff, but then he launched LawSec. He's an old school hacker. I mean he he's he learned how to hack and I don't want to tell his story, but he he learned to hack because he grew up in the lower east side of New York and uh and Picked up some NYPD computers that were left on the on the sidewalk for trash. Yeah, taught himself how to. He doesn't exactly look like a hacker. For people who don't know, he he looks. I don't know exactly what he looks like, but not 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 a not like a technical. Not what you would imagine. Uh, but perhaps that's that's a, that's a Hollywood portrayal. Yeah, I think you get in trouble these days saying that uh, that, that what a hacker looks like. I don't know if they have a traditional look. Just like yeah. I said, Hollywood has an idea of an FBI looks like. Yeah. I don't think you can do that anymore. I don't think you can say that anymore. But well, he uh, certainly has a big personality and charisma and all that kind of stuff. That's taboo. I, I can I can I can see him selling me anything. That's Sabu. <laughs> That's the, convincing me of anything. You know, the two different people. There's Sabu and there's Hector. Hector Hector is a sweet guy. That he he likes to have intellectual conversations and like that's just a thing. He he he'd rather you know just sit there and have a one on one conversation with you. But Sabu that that's a ruthless motherfucker. And you first met Sabu. 
I was tracking Sabu. Tracking That's all I knew was Sabu. I didn't know Hector. So until. when did your paths cross in terms of tracking? When did you first take on the case? The spring of uh, 11. So it, it was through the, Anonymous. Through Anonymous. Well, then really kind of Lulsec. Um, we were, Lulsec was a big thing, and it was pushed out to all the, the cyber, you know, 56 field offices in the FBI. Um, most of them have cyber squads or, or cyber units. And so... You know, it was being pushed out there, and it was in the news every day, but it really wasn't ours. So that we didn't have a lot of victims in our, in our AOR area of responsibility, um, and so we just kind of pay attention to it. Then I got a tip that a local hacker in New York had broken into AOL, and so Olivia Olivia Olson and I, she's another agent who she's still in. She's a supervisor out in LA. She's a great agent. We went all around New York looking for this kid um, just to see what we can find and ended up out in Staten Island uh, at his grandmother's house. She didn't know where he was, obviously. Why would she? Um, but I left my card. Um, he gave me a call that night and started talking to me. And I said, let's just meet up tomorrow at the McDonald's across from 26 Fed. And he came in and three of us sat there and talked and, you know, gave me his stuff. He started telling me about all the felonies he was committing those days, uh, including that break into AOL. Um, and then he finally says, you know, you know, I can give you Sabu. And Sabu to us was the Kaiser Sose Vagan. He was our guy. Uh, you know, he was the guy that was in the news that was pissing us off. So so he was part, uh, part of the FBI Fridays? Sabu was, yeah. Oh, he led it. Yeah, he was the leader of fuck FBI Fridays. So, yeah. <laughs> what was one of the more memorable... Uh, F the triple F's. I said, "What? How? How do you get? Why? How, how and why do you go after the beehive? That's kind of intense. You get you on the news. It gets you. It's the it's the the lulls. It's it's funnier to go after the big ones. Oh you know, and and they weren't getting like real FBI. They weren't breaking into FBI mainframes or anything. But they, you know, they were uh, you know affiliate sites or anything that have to. A lot of law enforcement stuff was coming out. So, but you know." We looked back, and so if this kid knew that Sabu, we, maybe there was a chance we could use him a little, little, to, to lure Sabu out. But we also said, well, maybe this kid knows Sabu in real life. And so we went and looked through the IPs, and 10 million IPs, we find one, and it belonged to him. And so that that day, Sabu, um, someone had doxed Sabu, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we were a little afraid he was going to be on the run. We had a, a surveillance team, and FBI surveillance teams are awesome. Like you cannot even tell they're FBI agents. It's 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 they are really that good. I mean, there's baby strollers and all whatever you wouldn't expect an FBI agent to have. So that's a little like the movies. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it, it is true, but and but they fit into the area. So now they're on the Lower East Side, which is, you know, a baby stroller might not fit in there as well as, you know, somebody just laying on the ground or something like that. Um, they really get in, play the character and get into it. So now I, I can never trust a baby stroller again. Yeah, well, yeah, probably shouldn't. Every every baby, I'm just like, look at, stare at them suspiciously. Especially if the mom's wearing cargo pants while she pushes it. So Yeah, so if it's that. like a very... <laughs> <laughs> stereotypical mom, stereotypical baby. I'm gonna be very suspicious. I'm gonna question the baby. That baby's wired. What be careful. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we raced out there, and, and like our squad's not even full. There's only a few guys there, and like I said, I, I'm a, I was a suit guy, but that day I had shorts and a t-shirt on. I had a white t-shirt on, um, and I only bring it up because Sabu makes fun of me to this day. So I had a bulletproof vest and a white t-shirt on, and that was it. Well, I 
shorts too and all that but um raced over to there we didn't have any equipment um we brought our boss's boss's boss he stopped off at nypd got us like a ballistic shield uh and a, and a battering ram if we needed it um and then we get to, to hector's house sabu's house and he's on the sixth floor um and so normally you know we're the the cyber dork squad um we'll hop in the elevator six floors is a long ways to go up in bulletproof vest and a ballistic shield but but we had been caught in an elevator before on a search so we we, we didn't yeah. took the stairs um <laughs> we get to the top oh, a tad winded um but uh knocking the door and this big towering guy opens the door just slightly and he sees the green vest with big yellow letters fbi and he steps outside. Um, yeah, can I help you? You know, and tries to social engineer us. Uh, but eventually, we get our way inside the house. Um, you know, I notice a few things that, that are kind of out of place. Um, there's a laptop charger and a flashing modem. Uh, and I said, "Well, do you have a computer here?" And he said, "No, there's no computer here." Um, so we we knew the the, the truths and then the half lies and all that sort of thing. So it took us about another two hours and finally he gave up that, that he was Sabu. He was the guy we were looking for. Uh, and so we sat there and we kind of showed him sort of the evidence we had against him. Um, and, you know, from his words, we sat there and talked, uh, talked like uh, two grown adults. And, you know, I gave him the options and he said, well, let's, uh, let's talk about working together. So he chose to become an informant. I don't think he chose that night, but that's where it kind of went to. Um, so the, the, we brought him down to the FBI that night, um, which was, it was a funny trip because I'm sitting in the back seat of the car with him. Um, and I was getting calls from all over uh, the U S from different FBI agents saying that we arrested the wrong guy. And I was like, I don't think so. And they're like, why do you think so? I was like, cause he says it's him. Uh, and they still said, no, nope, the wrong guy. So I said, well, we'll see how it plays out. That's so uh, interesting because it's, it's such actually, a strange world. <laughs> such a strange world because it's it's tough to, because you still have to prove it's the same guy, right? Because the anonymity. Yeah. I mean, we had his laptop by that, uh, you know, by that point. Yeah, I know. Him but saying, it's, that helped. Again, I'm a clue in my world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if uh, he would have fought it, I mean, that definitely would have come in as evidence that ever FBI agents are saying it's not him. You have to disclose that stuff. So you had a lot of stuff on him. Um, what was he facing if... Um, he was facing 125 years. 125 years in prison. That's that. Now that's if you took every charge we had against him and put him, you know, uh, consecutively. No, no one ever gets charged that. But yeah, he had essentially it would have been 125 years. You know, fast forward to the end, he got thanked by the judge for his service after nine months, and he walked out of the court a free man. But that's being while being an informant. Yes. Well, so the word informant here really isn't that good. Mm -hmm. It does. It's not fitting that that technically, I guess that's what he was, but. He didn't know the other people. It was all in all. He knew Nick's and all that. Hmm. Um, he really gave us the insight of what was happening in the hacker world. Like I said, he was an old school hacker. He back when hackers didn't work together with anonymous. He, you know, he was down, you know, cult of dead cow and those type guys, like way back. Um, and he was around for that. He's like an encyclopedia of hacking. But you know, we so just like his prime was in the nineties. For terror hack, but yeah, he kind of came back when uh, when Anonymous started going after Mastercard and PayPal and all that, do the WikiLeaks stuff. But even even that little interaction, being an informant, he probably made a lot of enemies. 
this how how do you protect a guy like that? He made enemies after we, it was revealed. Yeah. How does the FBI protect him? Yeah. Good luck. Uh, I mean, perhaps I'll talk to him one day. Uh, but uh, is that guy afraid for his life? I, I again, I think it doesn't seem like it. He has very good security uh, for himself, cybersecurity. Um, but you know, I, yeah, he doesn't like the negative things said about him online. Uh, I don't think anybody does. Um, but you know, I, I think it's so many years of the internet kind of bitching at you and all that you get callous to it's just internet bitching and also the the hacking world moves on very quickly he he is kind of um he's yeah like they're they're they have their own wars to fight now and he's not part of those wars anymore there's still people out there that that, that bitch and moan about him but but yeah i, I think it's less um i i think you know and he, he has a good message out there of you know he, he trying to keep kids from making the same mistakes he made he he tries to really preach that. How do people get into this line of work? Is there all kinds of ways? Being uh, not 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 your line of work, his line of work. It's just all the stories you've seen of people that are in anonymous and lawsec and Silk Road and all the cyber criminals you've interacted with. What's uh, what's the profile of a cyber criminal? I don't think there's a profile anymore. You know, I used to be able to say, you know, the kid in your mom's basement or something like that, but it's not true anymore. You know, like it's, it's, it's wide. It's like, I've arrested, I've arrested people that you wouldn't expect would be cyber criminals. And it's in the United States, it's international, it's everything. Oh, it's international. I mean, we're seeing a lot of the big hack, hackers now, um, the big arrests for hackers in England. Surprisingly, you know, there's, you know, you're not going to see there's a lot of good hackers like down in Brazil, but I don't think Brazil law enforcement is as good at hunting them down. So you're not going to see the big arrests. How much state sponsored uh, cyber attacks are there? Do you think more than you can imagine? And it was, I mean, what do you want to say? An attack, a successful attack or just a probing probing for information, just like feeling, you know, Testing that there's where the attack factors are, put, trying to collect all the possible attack factors. Put a Windows 7 machine on the internet forward facing and put a put a packet sniffer on there and look at where the driver comes from. I mean, in 24 hours, you were going to fill up a hard drive with packets just coming at it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not hard to, to know. I mean, it's just constantly probing for entry points into things. You know, you could you could go mad putting up honeypot draws in intrusions to try to see what methodologies. Just to see what's out there. Yeah, and it doesn't go anywhere. It maybe has fake information and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's just kind of to, to see what's going on and, and judge what's happening uh, on the internet. Get a, you know, lick your finger and test the wind of uh, what's happening these days. The funny thing about, like, because I'm at MIT, that attracted even more attention for the, not for the lulls, but for the technical challenge. It seems like people enjoy hacking MIT. Well, it's just the amount of traffic MIT was getting for that, in terms of just the sheer number of attacks from different places, is crazy. Uh, yeah, like just like that, putting up a machine, seeing what comes. NASA used to be the golden ring. Now everybody got NASA. That was like the early '90s. If you could hack NASA, that was the now. Yeah, MIT is a big one. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to see. <laughs> uh, respect. Because uh, I think in that case it comes from a, a somewhat good place. Because you know they're not getting any money from MIT. <laughs> it's more for the challenge. Let me ask you about that. About this world of, s of cybersecurity. Um, 
how big of a threat are cyber attacks for companies and for individuals? Like, let's lay out wh where are we in this world? What's out there? It's the wild, wild west, <laughs> and it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, people want the idea of security, but it's inconvenient, so they don't they push back on it. Um, and there are a lot of opportunistic na nation state financially motivated hackers, hackers for the lulls. You got three different tiers there. Um, and, and they're, they're on the prowl. They have tools. They have really good tools that are being used against us. And at what scale? So when you're thinking of, um, I don't know what's, let's talk about companies first. So say you're, you're talking to, um, a mid tier. I wonder what the more most interesting business is. So Google, let's let's we can look at large tech companies, or we can look at medium-sized tech companies. And like you were sitting in a room with a CTO, with a CEO, and uh, the the question is, how fucked are we? And what should we do? What's the low-hanging fruit? What's what what are the different strategies and uh, those companies should consider? I mean, the problem is they want a push button. They want to they want a out of the box solution that, that I'm secure. You know, they want to tell people they're secure, but and that's it, very challenging to have. It's impossible. But like, if I could, if someone had it, they'd be a billionaire. Uh, you know, they they they'd be beyond a billionaire. You know, because th that's what everybody wants. So, so it's you know, you can buy all the tools you want. It's configuring them the proper way. And there's if anyone's trying to tell you uh, that there's one solution that fits all, there's snake hole salesmen. And there's a lot of people in, in cybersecurity that, that are snake hole salesmen. Yeah, and I feel like there's tools, if they're not configured correctly, they uh, they just introduce, they don't increase security significantly, and they introduce a lot of pain for the people. They uh, decrease efficiency of the actual work you have to do. So like uh, we had, um, I was at Google for a time, and I think mostly I want to give props to their security efforts, mm -hmm. but user data, so like data that belongs to users, mm -hmm. is like the holy, like the, the amount of security they have around that is incredible. So most any time I had to work with anything even resembling user data. So I never got a chance to work with actual user data. Anything resembling that, first of all, you have no access to the internet. It's impossible to even come close to the access <laughs> to the internet. And there's so much pain to actually like interact with that data. Where it, I mean, it's it was extremely inefficient. In places where I thought it didn't have to be that inefficient, the security was too much, but I have to give respect to that because you, in that case, you want to err on the side of security. But that's Google. Yeah, they, that, they were doing a good job of this. The like, reputational harm if it got out. I mean, Google. You know, why is Google Drive free? You know, because they want your data. They want you to park your data there. So, you know, if the re if they got hacked or leaked information, the reputational harm would be tremendous. But you know, for a company that's not. It's really hard to do that, right? And the company is not as big as Google or not as tech savvy as Google might have a lot of trouble with doing that kind of stuff. Instead, instead of increasing security, they'll just decrease the efficiency. Well, yeah. So, so there's a big difference between IT and security. And unfortunately, like these mid-side companies, they try to stack security into their IT department. Your IT department is about business continuity. They're about trying to move business forward. They want the users to get the data they need to do their job so the company can grow. Security is not that. They don't want you to get the data. They, you know, but there's, there's, 
fine tuning you can do to you know ensure that i mean as simple as like having good onboarding procedures for employees like like you come into my company you don't need access to everything maybe you need access to something for one day turn the access on don't leave it on i mean i was the victim of the opm hack the office of personnel management because old credentials from a third-party vendor were sitting there and active and the chinese government found those credentials and were able to log in and steal all my information so a lot could be helped if you just control the credentials, the access, the access control, how long they last, and people who have who need access to a certain thing only get access to that thing and not nothing else, and then yeah. and yeah. it just gets refreshed like that. Access control, yeah, you know, yeah, like we said, setting up people leaving people leaving the company, get rid of their they don't need control. Two factor authentication, you know, that's a big thing. You know, we, we it's, it's, I mean, I sound like a broken record because this isn't anything new. This isn't rocket science. The problem is we're not implementing it. We're not, if we are, we're not doing it correctly uh, because these guys are taking, taking us. Well, two factor authentication is a good example of something that I just was annoyed by for the longest time because, yes, it's very good, but like it's, it seems that it's pretty easy to implement horribly to where it's like, it's not convenient at all for the for the legitimate user to use. It should be trivial to to do, uh, like to authenticate yourself twice should be super easy. If security, if it's slightly inconvenient for you, it's think about how inconvenient it is for a hacker and how this they're just going to move on to the next person. Yes, yes. In theory, when yes. implemented extremely well. Yeah. But I, I just don't think so. I think actually if, if it's, Inconvenient, it shows that system hasn't been thought through a lot. Well, so, do, you, do you know why we need two-factor authentication? People using the same password across the same a site. So when one site is compromised, people just take that username and password. It's called credential stuffing and just stuff it across the internet. Right. So if 10 years ago when we told everybody, don't use the same fucking password across the internet, across vulnerable sites, maybe two-factor wouldn't be needed. Yeah, so you wouldn't need two-factor if everyone did a uh, good job with passwords. Yeah. Right, but I'm saying like the two-factor authentication. It should uh, it should be super easy to authenticate myself uh, in some with some other device really quickly. Like there should be it should be frictionless. Like you just hit okay, okay, and anything that belongs to me. Yeah, right. and like I should it should very importantly be easy to set up what belongs to me. Uh, I don't know the full complexity of the cyber attacks these platforms are under. Right. They're probably under insane amount of attacks. Yeah, you've got it right there. That people have no idea these large companies how often they're attacked. Uh, you know, on a per second basis, and they have to fight all that off and, and pick out the good traffic in there. So, yeah, I, I would. I there's no way I'd want to run a large tech company. <laughs> what about protecting <laughs> individuals for individuals? What What's good advice for to try to protect yourself? from this increasingly dangerous world of cyber attacks. Again, educate yourself that you understand that there is a threat. First, you have to realize that. Then then, then you're going to step up and you're going to do stuff a little bit more. Um, sometimes I guess think I take that to a little bit extreme. I remember one time uh, uh, my mom called me and she was uh, screaming yeah. that uh, uh, it, I woke up this morning and I just clicked on a link and now my phone is making weird noises. And I was like, Throw your phone in a glass of water. Just put it in a glass of water right now. And she's, I, I made my mom cry. It was not a pleasant thing. Yep. Um, so sometimes <laughs> I go to a little extremes on those ones. But but understanding there's a risk and making it a little bit more a little more difficult to be, to become a victim. I mean, just 
understanding certain things. Um, you know, simple things like, you know, as we add more internet of the things to people's houses, I mean, how many Wi-Fi networks do people have? It's normally just one. And you're bumping your phones and giving your password to people to come to visit. Set up a guest network. Set up something you can change every 30 days. Simple little things like that. Um, you know, I hate to remind you, but change your passwords. I mean, I feel like I'm a broken record again. But just make it more difficult for others to victimize you. And then don't use the same password everywhere. That, that. Yes. I mean, I still, I still know people that do that. I mean, ask.fm got popped last week, two weeks ago, and that's 350 million username and passwords with connected Twitter accounts, Google accounts, uh, you know, all the different social media accounts, you know, that is a treasure trove for the next two and a half, three years of just using those credentials everywhere. Um, using, you'll learn, even if it's not the right password, you learn people's password st uh, styles. You know, bad guys are making portfolios out of people. Uh, you know, we're figuring out how people generate their passwords and kind of, you know, figuring, and then it's easier to crack their password. You know, we're making a dossier on each person. It's 350 million dossiers just in that one hack. Yahoo, there was a ha half a billion. So the, the thing a hacker would do with that it's try to find all the low-hanging fruit, like have some kind of program that, yeah, evaluates the strength of the passwords and then finds the weak ones. And that means that this person is probably the kind of person that would use the same password across multiple. Or even just write a program and do that. Remember the Ring hack a couple of years ago? That's all it was, is credential stuffing. So Ring, the security system by default, had two-factor but didn't turn it on. And they also had a, don't try unlimited tries to log into my account. You can lock it out after 10. By default, not turned on because it's not convenient for people. You know, Ring, you know, it's like, I want people to stick these little things up and have security in their house. Uh, but, you know, cybersecurity, don't make it inconvenient. Then people won't buy our product. That's how they got hacked. They, they, they want to say that it's insecure and got hacked into reputational harm right there for Ring, but they didn't. It was just credential stuffing. People bought username and passwords on, on the black market and just wrote a bot that just went through Ring and used every one of them to maybe 1% hit, but that's a big hit to the number of Ring users. You know, you can use also password managers to make to make the changing of the passwords easier. Yeah. Um, and, and the, to make you can choose the difficulty, the number of special characters, the length of it, and all that. Um, you know. my, my favorite thing is on websites yell at you for your password being too long or having too many special characters, or like, uh, or oh, yeah, you're not allowed to have this special character or something. You can only use these three special characters. It's like, uh, you know, <laughs> do you understand how password cracking works? If you specifically tell me which pass, which special characters I can use, <laughs> I want to, like, I honestly just want to have a one on one meeting, like uh, late at night with the engineer that pro programmed that because that's that's like an intern. I just want to have a sit down meeting. Yeah, I, I made my parents switch banks once because the security was so poor. I was yeah. like, you just you you can't have money here. But then there's also like the zero day attacks, like uh, we mentioned. I mentioned before the uh, the QNAPs that got hacked. Uh, luckily, I didn't have anything private on there, um, but it really woke me up to like, okay, so like you have to take everything extremely seriously. Unfortunately for the end users, there's nothing you can do about zero day. It's you know, there's this you have no control over that. I mean, it's a it's a the, the engineers that made the software don't even know about it. Now, let's talk about one days. Um, so there's a patch now out there for the security. So if you're not updating your systems for these security patches, if it's just not on you, um <laughs> 
my father-in-law has such an old iPhone, you can't security patch it anymore. So, you know, and, and I tell him, I say, you know, this is what you're missing out on. This is what you're exposing yourself to because, um, you know, we talked about that powerful tool that, uh, the, that how we found Ross Albrick at gmail.com. Well, bad guys are using that too. It's called, you know, it used to be called Google dorking. Now it's, I think it's named kind of Google hacking by the community. Um, you can go in, you know, and find a vulnerability, read about the white paper, what's wrong with that, that software. And then you can go on the internet and find all of the computers that are running that outdated software. And there's your list. There's your target list. Yeah. I know the vulnerabilities that are running. Again, not making a playbook here, but you know that's how easy it is to to find your targets, and that's what that's what the the bad guys are doing. Then the reverse is tough. It's much tougher, but it's still doable. Which is like first find the target. Like if you have specific targets uh, to to you know hack into a Twitter account, for example, much harder. That's probably social engineering, right? That's probably the best way. Probably if you if you want something specific to that. I mean, if you really want to go far, you know. If you're targeting a specific person, you know, how hard is it to get into their office and put a, you know, a little device, USB device in line with their mouse? Who, who checks how their mouse is plugged in? And you can, for 40 bucks on the black market, you can buy a key logger that just USB, then the mouse plugs right into it. It looks like an extension on the mouse if you can even find it. You can buy the, the stuff with a mouse inside of it. Uh, and just plug it into somebody's computer. And there's a key logger that lives in there and calls home, yeah. sends everything you want. So, I mean, and it's cheap. Yeah, in grad school, um, a program that built a bunch of key loggers. It was fascinating, a tracking mouse. Just for, uh, what I was doing as part of the research, uh, I was doing to uh, uh, to see if by the dynamics of how you type and how you move the mouse, you can tell who the person is. Oh, wow. That's like, um, it's, it's called the active authentication, or like, it's basically biometrics that's not using bio. Yeah. Uh, to to see how identifiable that is, so it's fascinating to study that. But it's also fascinating how damn easy it is to install keyloggers. <laughs> so I, I think is 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 in natural. What happens is you realize how many vulnerabilities there are in this world. You do that when you uh, understand bacteria and viruses. You realize they're everywhere. And the same way with um, I'm talking about biological ones. And then you realize that all the vulnerabilities that are out there. One of the things I've noticed quite a lot is how many people don't log out of their computers. Just how easy physical access the systems actually is. Uh, like in a lot of places in this world, and I'm not talking about private homes, I'm talking about companies, especially large companies. It seems quite trivial in certain places that I've been to, to walk in and have physical access to a system. And that's depressing to me. It is. It just, I laugh because uh, one of my, my partners at, at Naxo that I work at now, um, he, he worked at a, big company like you would know the name as soon as i told you i'm not gonna say it um but the guy who owned the company and the company has his name on it um didn't want to ever log into a computer it just annoyed the shit out of him so they hired a person that stands next to his computer when he's not there yeah. and that's his physical security <laughs> see that's good that's that's pretty good actually so, yeah i mean i guess if you could afford to do that yeah. <laughs> at least you're taking your security seriously i feel like there's a lot of people in that case would just not have a login yeah <laughs> No, the, the security team there had to really work around to make that work, yeah. uh, non-compliant with company policy. But that's that's interesting. The the, the key log is there's there's a lot of there's just a lot of threats. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of ways to get in. Yeah, I mean, so you can't sit around and worry about someone physically gaining access to your computer with keyloggers and stuff like that. Um, You know, if you're traveling to a foreign country and you work for the FBI, then yeah, you do. You pick little, you know, sometimes some countries you would bring a fake laptop just to see if they stole it or accessed it. I really want, especially in this modern day, to just create a lot of clones of myself that generate Lex sounding things and just get put so much information out there. I actually dox myself all across the world. And then you're not a target, I guess. You just put it out there. <laughs> I've always said that though. Like we do these searches in FBI houses and stuff like that. If someone just got like a box load of like 10 terabyte drives and just encrypted them, mm-hmm. oh my God, do you know how long the FBI would spin their wheels trying to get that data off there? It'd be insane. Oh, so, <laughs> so just give them... <laughs> you don't even know which one you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. So it's it's like uh, me printing like a treasure map to a random location, just uh, get people to go on goose uh, goose chases. Yeah. Uh, what what about operating system? What what have you found? Uh, what's the most secure and what's the least secure operating system? Windows, Linux. Uh, is know, there no universal? There's no universal security. I mean, it, it changed. You people used to think Macs were the most secure just because they just weren't out there. But now kids have had access to them. So, you know, it, it, you know, I know you're a Linux guy. I, I like Linux too. But, you know, it's tough to have run a business on, on, on Linux. You know, people want to move more towards the Microsofts and the, and the Googles just because, you know, it's, it's easier to communicate with other people that maybe aren't computer guys. So... You have to just take what what's best, what's easiest, and, and secure the shit out of it as much as you can, and just think about it. What are you doing these days at Naxo? So we just started Naxo. Uh, so I left the government and uh, went to a couple of consultancies, and I started working. Uh, really, all the people I I, I I worked good in the government with, um, I brought them out with me. Um, and now you, you used to work for the man, and now you're the man. Exactly. So, but now we formed a partnership, and it's it's just a it's a new cybersecurity firm that we our launch party is actually on Thursday, so it's going to be exciting. Do you, do you want to give more details about the party so that somebody can hack into it? No, I don't even <laughs> tell you where it is. <laughs> you can come if you want, but don't 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 bring the hackers. So. Well, that's well, see, Hector will be there. With I, us, I can't so. believe you uh, invited me because th- you also say insider threat is is the is the biggest threat. Uh, by the way, can you explain what the insider threat is? The biggest insider threat in my life is my children. Um, my my son's big into Minecraft and will download executables mindlessly and just run them on the network. So he so is, you recommend against marriage and family and kids? <laughs> nope, nope. I Secu- think, from a security perspective. From a security perspective, absolutely. But uh, no, I just, uh, segmentation. Uh, I mean, we do it in all businesses for years. Um, started segmenting networks, different networks. I just do it at home. My kid's on his own network. Um, it makes it a little bit easier to see what they're doing too. You can monitor traffic and then also throttle bandwidth if uh, if your your Netflix isn't playing fast enough or buffers or something. So you can obviously change that a little too. You, so. you know they're going to listen to this, right? Uh, they're going to get your tricks. Yeah, that's true. They definitely will listen. But there's nothing more humbling than your family. You think you've done something big and you go on a big podcast and talk to Les Freeman. They, they don't. They don't, uh, they don't, don't fucking care. <laughs> 
unless unless you're on TikTok or yeah, I'll, you'll you'll show up on a YouTube feed or something like that, and I'll be like, oh yeah, Whatever, this guy's boring. <laughs> yeah, my, my son does a podcast uh, for his school, and um, it's still I still can't get him to tell. Like so, so one of the Hector and I just started a podcast uh, talking about cybersecurity. We we do a podcast called ha- Hacker in the Fed. It just came out yesterday, so uh, first episode. First episode. Nice. So yeah, we got thirteen uh, thirteen thirteen hundred downloads the first day. Nice. So pretty. We were at the top of Hacker News, which is a big website in our, our world. So it's called Hacker in the Fed? Hacker in the Fed's the name of it. So. Go download and listen to Hacker in the Fed. I, I can't wait to see what, because I don't think I've seen a video of you two together, so I can't wait to see what the, the chemistry is like. We're, I mean, it's, it's not it's, weird that you guys used to be enemies and now you're friends. So yeah, I mean, we just did some a trailer and all that, and uh, the the our producer we have a great producer a guy named Phineas, and he he kind of pulls things out of me, and I said I said okay, I got one. My relationship with Hector is you know we're, we're very close friends now, and and I was like oh, I arrested one of my closest friends, yeah, which is a very strange relationship, yeah, it's weird, um, you know. It's but a- but he he says that I changed his life. I mean, he was going down a very dark path, and I gave him an option that one night, and he. He made the right choice. I mean, he's he now does penetration testing. He does a lot of good work, and uh, you know he's turned his life around. Do you worry about cyber war in the twenty first century? Absolutely. Uh, if there is a global war, it'll start with cyber. You know, if it's not already started. Do you, Do you feel like there's a like a boiling, like the the drums of war are beating? What's happening in Ukraine with Russia? It feels like the United States is becoming more and more involved in the conflict in that part of the world, and China is watching very closely. It's starting to get involved geopolitically and probably in terms of cyber. Um, do you worry about this kind of thing happening in the next decade or two, like where it really escalates? You know, people in the in the nineteen twenties were completely terrible at predicting the World War II. Do you think we're at the precipice of war potentially? I think we could be. I, I mean, I, I would hate to just be, you know, just fear-mongering out there, um, you know, and COVID's over, so the next big thing in the media is war and all that. But, I mean, there, there's some some flags going up that are, that are very strange to me. Is there ways to avoid this? I hope so. I hope smarter people than I are figuring it out. I hope people are playing their parts and in, in, in talking to the right people um, because that's it, the war is the last thing I want. Well, there's two things to be concerned about on the cyber side. One is the actual defense on the technical side of cyber. And the other one is the panic that might happen when something like some dramatic event happened because of cyber, some major hack that becomes public. I'm honestly more concerned about the panic because I feel like if people don't think about this stuff, the panic can hit harder. Like if, if they if, if they're not conscious about the fact that we're constantly under attack, I feel like it'll come like a much harder surprise. Yeah, I think people will be really shocked on things. I mean, so we talked about Lulsec today, and Lulsec was 2011. They had access into a water the water supply system of a major U.S. city. They didn't do anything with it. They were sitting on it in case someone got arrested and they were going to maybe just expose that it's, that it's insecure. Maybe they were going to do something to fuck with it. I don't know. But, you know, that that's that's 2011. You know, it, I don't think it's gotten a lot better since then. 
And there's probably nation states or major organizations that are sitting secretly on hacks like A hundred percent. A hundred percent. They're sitting secretly waiting to expose things. I mean, I, I again, I don't want to scare the shit out of people, but people have to understand the cyber threat. I mean, there are, you know, there are, there, there are thousands of nation state hackers in some countries. I mean, we have them too. We have offensive hackers. You know, the, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, there's planes that actually hit actual buildings and it was visibly clear and you can trace the information. With cyber attacks, say something that would result in the in a major explosion in New York City, how the hell do you trace that? Like, if it's well done, it's going to be extremely difficult. The, the problem is, it, 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 there's so many problems. One of which the US government in that case has complete freedom to blame anybody they want. True. And then to, to go start war with anybody, anybody that actually see uh, Jew, uh, all right, that's, sorry, that's one cynical take on it, of course. No, but you're going down the right path. I mean, the guys that flew the planes in the building is wanted attribution. They took credit for it. When we see the cyber attack, I doubt we're going to see attribution. Maybe the victim side, the U.S. government on this side might come out and try to blame somebody. But, you know, like you've brought up, they, they could blame anybody they want. There's not really a good way of verifying that. Can I just ask for your advice? So in, in my personal case, am I being tracked? How do I know? How do I protect myself? Should I care? You are being tracked. Um, I wouldn't say you're being tracked by the government. You're, you're definitely being tracked by big tech. Uh, no, I mean, me personally, Lex, an, an escalated level. So like, uh, um, like you mentioned, there's an FBI file on people. Sure. <laughs> I'd love to see what's in that file. Uh, <laughs> uh, who did I have the argument for? Oh, let me ask you, FBI. Yeah. Uh, how's the cafeteria food in FBI? Like, At the academy? It's bad. Yeah. Um, what about like at headquarters? Headquarters, a little bit better because that's where the director. I mean, he he eats up on the seventh floor. I mean, so have you been down. like a Google? Have you been to the uh, Silicon Valley? Those cafeteria, like those. I've, I've been to the Google in Silicon Valley. I've been to the Google in, in New York. Yeah, the food is incredible. It is great. So FBI is worse. Well, when you're going through the academy, they don't let you outside of the building, so you have to eat it. Um, and I think that's the only reason people eat it. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I got it. Okay, I don't but, know why but there's also a bar inside the FBI Academy. People don't know that. Alcohol uh, bar? Yes, alcohol bar. Wow. And if you, as long as you've passed your PT and in uh, and, and going well, you're allowed to go to the bar. Nice. It, it feels like if I was a hacker, I would be going after like celebrities because they're a little bit easier, like celebrity celebrities, like Hollywood. The Hollywood nudes were a big thing there for a long time. But not even... Yeah, I guess news. That's what they thing. went after. I mean, they, yeah, all yeah. those guys, they socialized. They did, they, they social engineered Apple to get backups, to get the recoveries for backups. And then they just pulled all their news. And I mean, whole websites were dedicated to that. Yeah. See that? See, I wouldn't do that kind of stuff. It's very creepy. I, I would go, if I was a hacker, I would go after um, like major, like powerful people and like tweet something from their account and like something that like positive. Like loving, but like for the for the walls, the obvious that it's a troll. God, you get busted so quick. By what a bad hacker. <laughs> really? But why? <laughs> because why? hackers never put things out about love. Okay. 
Oh, you mean like this is clearly yeah, this, this is clearly Lex. What the he fuck? He talks about love in every podcast he does. <laughs> I, I would just be like, no, oh god damn it! Now somebody's gonna do it. You'll blame me. It wasn't me. Looking back at your life, is there something you regret? <laughs> I'm only 44 years old. I'm already looking back. Is there stuff that um, you regret? EV unit. Yeah, it still- <laughs> got away. <laughs> That was the one that got away. Uh, yeah, I mean, it took me a while into my law enforcement career to, to learn about like the compassionate side, and and it took Hector Monsiger to make me realize that criminals aren't really criminals; they're human beings. Um, that really humanized the whole thing for me. Sitting with him for for nine months, um, I think that's maybe why I had a lot more compassion when I arrested Ross. Um, probably wouldn't have been so compassionate if it was before Hector. But but yeah, he changed my life and showed me that 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 humanity side of things. So would it be fair to say that all that all the criminals or most criminals are just people that took a wrong turn at some point? They they all have the capacity for for good and for evil in them. Uh, I'd say ninety nine percent of the pe- the criminals that I've interacted with, yes, uh, the people with the child exploitation. No, I don't have any place in my heart for them. What advice would you give to to people in college, people in high school, trying to figure out what they want to do with their life, uh, how to have a life they can be proud of, how to have a career they can be proud of, all that kind of stuff. In the U.S. Um, budget that was just put forward, there's $18 billion for cybersecurity. Uh, we're about a million people short of where we really should be in the industry, if not more. Um, if you have want job security and want to work and, and see exciting stuff, uh, head towards cybersecurity. It's a, it's, it's a good career. Um, and, you know, one thing I dislike about like uh, cybersecurity right now is they expect you to come out of, of college and have 10 years experience in protecting and knowing every different Python script out there and, and everything available. Um, you know, the industry needs to change and let the lower people in, in order to, to, to broaden and, and get the, those billion jobs filled. Um, but as far as their personal security, just remember, it's all going to follow you. I mean, uh, you know, there's laws out there now that you have to turn over your social media accounts in order to have certain things. Um, they just changed that in New York State. If you want to carry a gun, you have to turn over your social media to to figure th- if you're a good social uh, character. Um, so hopefully you didn't say something strange in the last few years, and it's going to follow you forever. Um, I, I bet Ross Albrecht would tell you the same thing when he not don't put Ross Albrecht at gmail.com on things because it's going to last forever. Yeah, people sometimes, uh, for, some, for some reason, they interact on social media as if they're talking to a couple of buddies. Uh, like just shooting shit and and mocking and, and like, um, you know, what is that? Busting each other's chops, like making fun of yourself, like being, uh, especially gaming culture, uh, like people who stream. Thank God that's not recorded. Oh my God. The things people say on those streams. Yeah. But a lot of them are (laughs) recorded. Yeah. yeah. So so there's, there's a whole Twitch thing where people stream for many hours a day. And, uh, I mean, just, Outside of the very offensive things they say, they just swear a lot. They're not the kind of person that I would want to hire. I wouldn't want to work with. Now, I understand that some of us might be that way privately, I guess, when you're shooting shit with friends, like uh, 
playing a video game and talking shit to each other, maybe. Yeah. But like, that's all out there. You have to be conscious of the fact that that's all out there. And it's just not, it's not a good look. It's not like you're, you should, it's it's complicated because I'm like against hiding who you are. Oh, but like an asshole, you should hide some of it. Yeah, but like, I just feel like it's going to be misinterpreted. When you talk shit to your friends while you're playing video games, it, it doesn't mean you're an asshole. Because yeah. you're an asshole to your friend but that's how uh, a lot of friends show love. Yeah, an outside person can't judge how I'm friends with you. Right. If I want to be, this is our relationship. You, you, if that person can say that, that I'm an asshole to them, uh, then that's fine. I'll take it. But you can't tell me I'm an asshole to them just because you saw my interaction. I agree with that. They'll take those words out of context, and now that's that's considered who you are is dangerous. And people take that very nonchalantly. People treat their behavior on the internet very very carelessly. That's definitely something that people need to learn and take extremely seriously. Also, I think like taking that seriously will help you figure out who you what you really stand for. If you use your language carelessly, you'd never really ask like, "What do I stand for?" I feel like it's a good opportunity when you're young to ask like, "What are the things that are okay to say? What are the things? What are the ideas I stand behind?" Like what, are, especially if they're controversial and I'm willing to say them because I believe in them versus just saying random shit for the, for the lulls. Because for the random shit for the lulls, keep that from off the internet. That said, man, I was an idiot for most of my life I mean, and I'm constantly learning and growing. I'd hate to be responsible for the kind of person uh, I was in my teens, oh. in my in my twenties. I mean, it didn't do anything offensive, but it just, I, I changed as a person like i used to i guess i probably still do but i used to you know i used to read so much existential literature uh that was that was a phase there's like phases yeah you grow and evolve as a person that changes you in the future yeah i thank god there wasn't social media when i was in high school <laughs> thank god oh my god i would never be gotten the fbi <laughs> would you recommend that people consider a career uh, at a place like the fbi I loved the FBI. I never thought I would go anyplace else but the FBI. I, I thought I was going to retire with the 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 gold watch and everything from the FBI. That was my plan. Gold watch? No, but you know what? It's a oh, it's an expression. Right. <laughs> um, you, you get a gold badge. You actually get your badge in Lucite and your creds. They nice. put it in Lucite and all that. So, does it? Does it? By the way, just on a tangent, since we like those, does it hurt you that the FBI? by certain people is distrusted or even hated 100 percent, it kills me I, I like I, i've never until recently not I, I sometimes be embarrassed about the fbi sometimes which is really really hard for me to say because i love that place i love the people in it i love the, the the brotherhood that you have with you know all the guys in your squad the you know, guys and girls i just use guys you know we, you know we we I, I developed a real drinking problem there because we were so social of going out after after work and, and, and you know, continuing on. It really was a family, um, you know, so I, I do miss that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if someone can become an FBI agent, I mean, it's pretty fucking cool, man. You know, the day you graduate and walk out of the academy with a gun and a badge and, you know, the, the power to charge someone with a misdemeanor for flying a United States flag at night. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so there is a part of like representing and loving your country, and especially if you're doing cybersecurity. So, there's a lot of technical savvy in the uh, in different places in the FBI. Yeah, I mean, there there's different 
pieces. Sometimes, you know, you'll see an, uh, an older agent that's done, you know, not cybercrime come over to cybercrime at the end so he can get a job once he goes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also some some guys that come in. Um, you know, I won't name his name, but there was a guy, I mean, I think he was a hacker when he was a kid. And now he's been an agent. Now he's way up in management. Um, great guy. I love this guy. And he knows who he is if he's listening. Um, you know, that that, you know, he had some skills. But we also lost a bunch of guys that had some skills because because uh, I mean, we had one guy in the squad um, that he had to leave the FBI because his wife became a doctor and she got a residency down in Houston and and she couldn't move. Uh, he he wasn't allowed to transfer, so he decided to keep his family versus the FBI. So there's some stringent rules in the FBI that that, that need to be relaxed a little bit. Yeah, I love hackers turned like leaders. Like uh, one of my quickly becoming good friends is Mudge. He was a was a big hack in the nineties and then uh now was recently Twitter chief security officer, CSO. Uh but he had a bunch of different leadership positions, including being my boss at Google. Oh. But um but originally a hacker. It's cool to see like hackers become like leaders. I just wonder what's, what would cause him to stop doing it. What, why he would then take like a like a managerial route for high tech companies. Versus- I think a lot of those guys. So this is like the '90s. They really were about like the freedom. Uh, there's like a philosophy to it. Yeah. And when I think the hacking culture evolved over the years, and I think when it leaves you behind, you start to realize like, oh, actually, what I want to do is I want to help the world, and I can do that in mm. legitimate routes and so on. But that's the story that, and yeah, I would I would love to uh, talk to him one day. But I I wonder how common that is too, like young hackers turn turn good. You're saying it like pulls you in. It's if you're yeah. not careful, it can really pull you in. Yeah, it's, it's you, you know you're good at it. You become powerful. You become you know everyone's slapping you on the back and say what a good job and all that. You know at a very young age. Yeah. So yeah, I would love to get into my buddy's mind on why he stopped hacking. And moved on. Oh, that's going to be a good conversation. In, in in his case, maybe, maybe it's always about a great woman involved, a family and so on. Yeah, that grounds true. you. Um, uh, because like, yeah, there is a danger to hacking that, that uh, once you're in a relationship, once you have family, maybe you're not willing to partake in. What's your story? What, uh, from childhood, what are some fond memories you have? Fond memories? Where did you grow up? Well, I don't give away that information. <laughs> in the United States? For you? Yeah, 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 in Virginia. In Virginia. So, yeah. What are some rough moments? What are some beautiful moments that you remember? I, I had a very good family growing up. Um, the, the like, rough moment, and I'll, I'll tell you a story that just happened to me two days ago, and it fucked me up, man. It really did, and you'll be the first. I've never told it. I, I tried to tell my wife this two nights ago, and I couldn't get it out. So... My father, uh, he's a disabled veteran, or he, he was a disabled veteran. He was in the Army and got hurt and uh, was in a wheelchair his whole life, um, for all my growing up. He uh, he was my biggest fan. He just wanted to know everything about you know, what was going on in the FBI, my stories. Um, I was a local cop before the FBI, and I got to a high-speed car chase, uh, you know, and, and foot chase and all that, and kicking doors in. He, he, he wanted to hear all those stories, and... At some points, I was kind of too cool for school, and ah, oh, dad, I just want to break and all that, and and things going on. And, uh, I we we lost my dad during COVID, um, not because of COVID, but it was around that time. But but it was right when COVID was kicking off, and so he died in the hospital by himself, and I didn't get to see him then. Um, and then uh, 
my mom had some people visiting her the other night, and uh, the, the Tom and Karen Rogerberg, and I'll say they're my second biggest fans, right behind my dad. Um, they 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 always asking about me and, and my career, and they read the books and seen the movie. They, they'll even tell you that Silk Road movie was good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll lie to you on that. But and so they came over and uh, and I, I helped them with something, and, uh, and my mom was called me back a couple days later, and she said, "I appreciate you helping them. I, you know, I know, you know, f- fixing someone's Apple phone over the phone really isn't what you do for a living. It's not. It's kind of beneath you and all that. And uh, but but I appreciate it." Uh, and she said, "Oh, they they loved hearing the stories about you know Silk Road and all those things." And she goes, "You know." Your, your dad, he he loved those stories. He just, he, I, I just wish he could have heard them. I mean, like he even would tell me. He would say, uh, you know, maybe maybe Chris will come home and uh, I'll, I'll get him drunk and, and he'll tell me the stories. Um, but and then she goes, uh, maybe one day in, in heaven you can tell him those stories. And I fucking lost it. I literally stood in my shower sobbing, yeah, like like a, a child, like it, it just thinking about like all my dad wanted was the, those stories, yeah. And now I'm on a fucking podcast telling stories to the world, and yeah, uh, I didn't here. tell him. Yeah. So, it, did you ever have like a long heart to heart with him about like about s- s- such stories? He was in the hospital one time, and I went through, and uh, I want to know about his history, like his life, what he did, yeah. and I think he maybe sensationalized some of it. Yeah. Uh, but that's what you want. Your dad's yeah. your hero, so you want to hear those things. He's a good storyteller. Um. Yeah, again, I don't know what was true and not true, but you know, <laughs> some of it was really good. Um and it was just good to hear his life. But you know, we lost him and 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 now those stories are gone. You miss him? Yeah. What did he teach you about what it means to be a man? So, my dad um he was a, an engineer. And so Part of his job, we worked for um, Vermont Power and Electric or whatever it was. I mean, he when he first got married to my mom and all that, um, like he flew around in a helicopter, uh, checking out like power lines and dams. He he used to swim inside to scuba into dams to check to make sure like they were functioning properly and all that. Nice. Pretty cool shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then he couldn't walk anymore. I probably would have killed myself if my life switched like that so bad. And yeah. my dad probably went through some dark points, but he hid that from me, maybe. Um, and so to to get through that struggle, to, to teach me, like, you know, you, you press on, you have a family, people count on you, you do what you got to do. Um, that was that was big. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you make him proud, man. I, 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 I'm sure I do, but I don't think he knew that, that I knew that. Well, you get to pass on that love to your kids now. I try, I try, but... I can't impress him as much as uh, my dad impressed me. <laughs> I can try all I want, but well, what do you think is the role of love? Because you, uh, you, you, you gave me some uh, grief. You busted my balls a little bit for talking about love a lot. What do you think is the role of love in the human condition? I think it's the greatest thing. I think everyone should be searching for it. If you don't have it, find it, and get it as soon as you can. Um, I love my wife. I really do. I had no idea what, what love was until my kids were born. My son came out and um, this is a funny story. He came out and, uh, you know, I just wanted him to be safe and be healthy and all that. And I said to the doctor, I said, uh, 10 and 10, doc, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, everything good. And he goes, ah, nine and nine. 
I was like, what the fuck? He's like, oh, this is going to suck. Okay, we'll deal with it and all that. Uh, he was talking about the Apnecar score or some score yeah. about breathing and yeah. color and all that. And I I was like, oh, shit. But I, I, no one told me this. Yeah. Um, but so I'm just sobbing. I couldn't even cut the umbilical cord. Like, just fell in love with my kids when I saw them. And and that, to me, really is what, what love is, like, just for them, man. And, and I see that through your career that love developed, which is awesome. The, 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 the being able to see the humanity in people i didn't when i was young the 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 foolishness of youth yeah you know i i needed to learn that lesson hard i mean you know when i was young in my career it was just about career goals and you know and resting people became stats you know you rest someone you get a good stat you get an attaboy you know maybe you know the boss likes it and you get a better job or you get you move up the chain it, it took it took a real change in my life to, to see that humanity and uh, I can't wait to to listen to the, to your talk, which is uh, probably hilarious and insightful, um, given the life you've, the two of you lived, and given how much you've changed each other's lives. Um, I can't wait to listen, brother. And thank you so much. Appreciate this is a huge honor. You're an amazing person with an amazing life. This is an awesome conversation, dude. I huge fan. I love the podcast. Glad I could be here. Thanks for the invite. It's an honor. So uh, exercising the brain too. It was great. It was a great conversation. <laughs> and the heart too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You got, you got some tears there at the end. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this conversation with Chris Tarbell. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Benjamin Franklin. They who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.